Welcome to this NJ Spotlight Roundtable, the state of marijuana in the state of New Jersey. What's next? This program was recorded Friday, June 21st, 2019 at the Doubletree Somerset Hotel and Conference Center in Somerset, New Jersey. For more than a year, New Jersey's Democratic leaders have worked on a three-pronged strategy to legalize and broaden the use of marijuana in the state. The first aspect of the strategy was to widen the availability of medical marijuana to more citizens. Second, leaders want to legalize adult use recreational marijuana for those over age 21. The third prong is what leaders call a social justice pact. It means offering records expungement of those convicted of possessing small amounts of marijuana. They also plan to give minorities a leg up on investing in the new industry. In this roundtable, two panels will take a look at the state of play in this effort and consider what comes next. The first panel will focus on medical marijuana. Governor Phil Murphy wants to implement new regulations that will expand the number of dispensaries, expand the list of illnesses it can be prescribed for, among other things. And this session will look at the new regulations being proposed and how that will affect health care in the Garden State. In the second panel, we'll focus on adult use, marijuana, and social justice. The panel will also look ahead at what's next, whether or not legalization passes a second vote this spring. We'll also discuss the plans for expungement and social justice to determine what should be expected. Here to open the program and describe the presentations is John Mooney, the founding editor of NJ Spotlight. Good morning, everyone, and welcome. My name is uh, John Mooney, uh, founding editor of NJ Spotlight, and um, thrilled to have you here. Um, we've done about a hundred of these events over the course of our nine years. The last two have uh, been in downpours, so I don't know if that's a, a bad trend for us or not, but um, it, uh, I, I appreciate you all braving the weather. I, I, I got stuck out there on the highway as well. Um, we've, uh, as I mentioned, we've done about you know, close to a hundred of these around the state since we were founded in, in 2010. And, and as I often say, um, really critical to our public mission is to, to hold these events and, and bring folks together. Um, you know, we, we live in this very online world where we uh, exchange ideas, often anonymously even, and I think the opportunity to get in the same room and talk about issues uh, is, is something that um, we, we should have more of, and, and I appreciate you all being part of it. Um, this topic, obviously, uh, or this, this um, pair of topics, obviously one of our timelier. Um, we appreciate, you know, while they put aside the recreational marijuana, they, we appreciate that they moved on the medicinal marijuana yesterday, the day before our event. I know that was planned entirely that they would do that. Um, so um, obviously lots to talk about. Um, I also want to to share a little, a little marketing for NJ Spotlight. We, have, uh, we, we don't exist without the, the support of, of folks like yourselves. We're a nonprofit um, and really rely on donors. And we, we re recently just started our spring slash summer campaign, fundraising campaign. And, and as, I, as I said, uh, it's really critical to have the support of folks like yourselves. So feel free to go to our site where there's lots of opportunities to donate. Certainly you can corner me and I will point you in the right direction anytime. But uh, I appreciate and thank you in advance for that support. As I said, we, it wouldn't, Spotlight wouldn't be here without it. 
Um, we also wouldn't be holding these events, especially um, without support of sponsors. Uh, you all go to a lot of uh, conferences in your lives that, um, you know, uh, carry a fee or, or some kind of charge. We don't. These events have always been free, and it's uh, also part of the public mission to, to really allow anybody who wants to come to join us, and, but that wouldn't happen without support of sponsors. Um, there's no way that would happen. And so I want to thank them especially, and I want to introduce our business development director, Steve Shallot, to say a few words about them, and then we can get on with the show. Thank you, John, and welcome, everyone. This is a, a great opportunity for us to, to expound upon a topic, as John was mentioning, which is increasingly in the dialogue in this state and around the country about the medical expansion and, uh, and, and legalization path for cannabis, marijuana in, in, uh, in the country. And New Jersey is at the forefront of how to, to do this, um, and yet it's still an amazingly complex topic, and we hope to unpack um, a great deal of it today. And um, we'll welcome your questions as well. There are cards on the table, and should you like to, to submit one, we will come around, Rachel and I will we'll take those, and we'll kind of curate these back to Lee Kehoe, who will be moderating the panels, and we'll do the best to incorporate as many as we can. John mentioned our sponsor support, and uh, it's, it is critical. It's how we put these events on. It's how we allow them to be without a fee. And, uh, and they also allow um, important entities to signal leadership around these, uh, these important topics. <clears throat> so um, I'd like to, on the, on the behalf of our three sponsors today, say a few words, as we are grateful that they've brought their support um, to today's event. <clears throat> uh, the first being Weed Maps. So Weed Maps is a leading global technology platform powering the cannabis industry. Weed Maps fosters an online community where businesses and consumers can search and discover cannabis products, become educated on all things cannabis, review cannabis businesses, and connect with other like-minded users. Their government relations and public policy arm, which is called WM Policy, provides research and thought leadership in the field of cannabis legalization in the US and around the world. So thank you for Weed Maps. This is their second time supporting us here, and we're, we're very grateful for that. Um, secondly, we'd like to thank Archer Law, that's Archer PC, which is a full service regional law firm of more than 175 attorneys with a network of seven offices providing results-driven legal services in a broad range of disciplines and industries. Archer's attorneys are at the forefront of marijuana legalization and are advisors to retailers, processors, growers, and ancillary businesses. Archer's cannabis law practice is led by industry experts who are part of the New Jersey United for Marijuana Reform Steering Committee. They are also on the board of the New Jersey Cannabis Industry Association and are part of a select group of attorneys advising the state of New Jersey on the intricacies of marijuana legalization, taxation, and regulation. And this is also the second time that Archer has supported the event and we're, we're grateful as well. Um, our third sponsor, who is also uh, with us again for a second time, is the New Jersey Cannabis Industry Association, which is the state's largest nonprofit trade organization dedicated to advancing the legalization of cannabis. The NJCIA's mission is to promote sensible policies derived in part from best practices in other states and to help optimize the responsible growth and development of New Jersey's cannabis industry. 
The NJCIA strives to promote all industry sectors, including biotechnology, cultivation, manufacturing, processing, retail dispensing, security, finance, industrial hemp, and consulting services. So there's uh, obviously a wide, wide range of considerations to properly spin up this industry in the state, and uh, these three organizations, including the NJCIA, are involved with um, helping understand and hopefully codify this, and much of what they're um, uh, involved with will be brought up in the conversations today. Um, I'd like to, uh, again, bring John Mooney up, who's going to, uh, to kind of kick off our event. Lee Kehoe will be our moderator, and uh, we'll start with the medical panel. Um, then followed by the, the adult use panel to follow, and we will wrap promptly by 11.30. And thank you again for being here. Thanks, Steve. So um, we'll get going. Um, one thing I, I certainly want to announce, and it, it sets this up well, is um, as many of you may know, but some of you may not, uh, NJ Spotlight uh, recently got married of sorts. Um, and joined forces with NJTV News um, and uh, WNET in New York, and uh, continuing to do what what we do best. But but we are certain in this in this new um, uh, partnership that that will only improve, and, and also NJTV News will as well. And as such, uh, we this event is being live streamed um, by NJTV News uh, on their site, and that will be archived. And, and something that you can share, and you can share right now, but you also can share uh, going forward with, with folks who weren't able to make it or are stuck in the, uh, in the flooding out there. Um, and we also would like to start with a piece NJTV News um, did on, on the topic uh, to help frame the discussion. So if we're ready to do that, we're going to dim the lights a little bit. I don't know. Make it. May be hard to see. Um, it may be hard to do that anyway. So why don't we get going? Accessibility and supply for patients who are desperately in need of, of help. At a morning news conference, Governor Phil Murphy announced New Jersey's medical marijuana program will grow like a weed, jumping from just six alternative treatment centers to 108 distributed evenly across the state. He said Jersey currently has more than 47,000 card-carrying participants and adds 3,000 additional patients each month. Meeting these needs is vital to our ongoing work of ensuring a medical marijuana program that is more accessible to more patients and which ensures a supply of high-quality medicinal cannabis needed to meet demand and at lower prices. The increase includes 24 cultivation, 30 manufacturing, and 54 separate dispensary sites. More, it upstages a medical marijuana program expansion bill that's just days away from an assembly vote. The governor supports the bill in principle, but disagrees with several aspects, which could lead to a conditional veto. The bill is on his desk will be soon, and so we're hopeful that we can work all these issues out together. But I think the governor's goal is to make sure that there's enough product for patients who need it. our panels um, and 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 do we have all everyone's great okay and again as Steve said um, we'd like to have uh, interaction with the audience on on these events and the way we've uh, typically done it and we will do it again today um, is if you have a question uh, that you want to be part of the discussion write it down on an index card which should be at your uh, at your uh, tables 
We'll be wandering around the outside, uh, Steve, myself, uh, and Rachel sort of wave to us. We'll grab it from you and we'll get it up to the moderator. And that said, I'd like to introduce Lee Keough, uh, also one of NJ Spotlight's founders and our editor-in-chief, uh, has followed this issue and, and edited stories on it and, and written about it herself um, now for years and, and certainly uh, brings a, a great perspective to it as well. Um, and I'm proud to introduce Lee and looking forward to the discussion. All yours. Thank you. Oh, this is working. Okay. Thanks, John. Um, as he said, I'm Lee Keough. I'm the editor-in-chief um, of NJ Spotlight. And this is one of my favorite topics because it's so interesting, and I guess you all agree. Um, we have, this is the medical marijuana panel. We have two panels today. And we do have news, and I'm going to ask everybody to introduce themselves and, and, and whatever, but we do have news in that last, yesterday afternoon, the state legislature um, approved a new medical marijuana um, bill. And I'm sure we're going to talk a little bit about what's in the bill and what it kind of means, um, but, uh, you know, um, it is brand new. And we do, it's an expansion of the program, and we do expect that, I don't think Jeff here wants to say this at all, but uh, we do expect the governor to sign it because he did negotiate it with the legislature before it was voted on. So I think we can kind of think that what was in the bill yesterday is going to become law. Jeff? Sure. Uh, good morning, everybody. Uh, Jeff Brown, Assistant Commissioner for uh, Medicinal Marijuana at the New Jersey Department of Health. Um, I'm really excited to be here. Um, it's not my first rodeo on a spotlight roundtable. I think my first was uh, maybe uh, seven years ago at this point, uh, talking about health insurance exchanges with uh, <laughs> Chairman Conaway. Um, I've been here talking about Medicaid accountable care organizations, all sorts of good uh, health care topics. And um, that's just a little way to talk about my broader background. I've not always been in cannabis policy. Uh, I come from more of a traditional health policy background, um, working on uh, primarily uh, access to health care for um, low income and otherwise uh, uh, sort of disadvantaged populations. Um, so uh, I've been with the department uh, for uh, about a year um, and uh, uh, really have uh, overseen and, and undertaken a dramatic expansion uh, in the med medical cannabis market in New Jersey. Um, we uh, uh, implemented um, uh, recommendations made by uh, the department in our Executive Order 6 report, um, which has really led to uh, the patient population expanding to now uh, just under 50,000 patients. We should hit 50,000 either by the end of this month or early next month. Um, we're uh, on the precipice of hitting uh, 1,000 physicians uh, participating and recommending medical cannabis in the program. Um, the bill that Lee references would, would help to sort of uh, dramatically increase the, the uh, provider base that uh, recommend medical cannabis. Um, the, uh, and and uh, we've doubled the amount of caregivers in the program as well. And caregivers are people who uh, assist qualified patients accessing dispensaries. Um, we still only have six dispensaries open. Um, there are six more in the pipeline, um, working feverishly to get those uh, open. Um, and then, uh, you know, we're, we're, only, we're only poised uh, to continue to grow the market and to continue to improve conditions for patients uh, and caregivers. Jackie. Hi, good morning, everybody. Uh, my name is Jackie Cornell. I recently joined a company called 1906 as their chief of policy and health innovations. Um, immediately prior, I was with the New Jersey Department of Health, uh, where I worked with Jeff. Uh, and much like Jeff, uh, my career, uh, this is my first 
professional role in the cannabis space. I spent most of my career working in uh, access to healthcare issues. Um, the Affordable Care Act, I worked for the federal government uh, for the last three years of the Obama administration, uh, specifically here in New Jersey, New York, Puerto Rico, working to implement the ACA and talk about what a health insurance exchange is and what is a premium and what is a deductible. Um, prior to that, I spent a, a good chunk of years uh, working in a, a variety of other consumer-facing protection-like organizations, uh, trying to talk to people about the benefits of basically how does legislation impact their lives and why should they care. And I started my career at Planned Parenthood as a sex educator. Um, so I have been sort of at every stage of the healthcare space, um, and I'm really excited to bring my expertise in this arena uh, to the cannabis industry. I think um, I have some slides. I'm not sure if we'll show them a little bit about what 1906 uh, does and who they are. The name of the company uh, is after the Wiley Act. That was the year that um, we made cannabis, right, with all the prohibition started. And part of what our organization is doing is not only looking to sell an exceptional product, which I'll talk about in just a quick second, um, but really to change the tide in the industry. Um, there are so many folks who are there to make a quick buck and to, you know, want to just kind of get in it from a from a business advantage. We see this as a, an extreme opportunity uh, to change the course of social justice and the work that goes on in the next couple of weeks and months and years will set the tone for the next century of how this country looks at and uses and um, we hope no longer stigmatizes uh, cannabis consumption. Um, I have seen by my work in the Department of Health and with just talking to a bunch of people um, so many lives that have been changed by medicinal marijuana. Um, I have close friends who were addicted to opioids had sort of falls or accidents, uh, had injuries, and with the addition of medicinal marijuana, bless you, to their lives, um, were able to get off opioids completely, turn their whole life around, and just live such a better quality of life. So I was a true believer on the policy side, I'm committed on the social justice side, and then I've just seen so many stories of so many people whose lives have been improved. Um, what 1906 also does sort of just in the cannabis space is we work to create um, edibles that not only use uh, a single strain cannabis source, but also other botanicals. And so our chief scientist came from the vitamin world and the supplement world, and realizing that for many individuals, uh, a low-dose, fast-acting cannabis product is the name of the game. They want something to just complement their life a little bit um, and not to chase a high. And that was why I was really excited to also join a company that took a very medical approach almost to the cannabis industry, realizing that if we could tell doctors, yes, take one of these to help you sleep every night, um, is much more sort of in line with how our current medical system looks at uh, medicine and hopefully cannabis can get there. So happy to talk more about that in my experience and really excited to be with you all today. Thank you very much. Thank you. Uh, I have some visuals. Uh, my name is Ken Walski and I'm a registered nurse. I've been an RN for 43 years here in New Jersey. I'm also licensed in Pennsylvania. I've uh, had a wide variety of clinical experiences. I was a, I worked in psychiatric hospitals. I worked in intensive care units and coronary care units. I've um, uh, worked, I was a public health nurse in the city of Trenton, and uh, for 22 years I worked with the New Jersey Department of Corrections, starting as a staff nurse and ending as a health services manager. So um, I'm very proud to be a nurse. We've, uh, we're the m most trusted profession in the country, and, um, and we're uh, supportive, non-judgmental patient advocates. So that's pretty much what I like so much about it. We do our own assessments of patients. We, uh, we determine whether a course of therapy is appropriate to be continued or in, uh, discontinued, uh, increased or decreased. So when we see the results of 
uh, marijuana with our patients, and we're with our patients 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Uh, it's no surprise that uh, there's overwhelming support for medical marijuana in the, in the nurses community. Now, slide please. Uh, I became involved in medical marijuana in 1993 when I uh, met this gentleman, James Burton, at a conference in Amsterdam. Uh, the conference was uh, basically about uh, the discovery of the CB2 receptor in the um, immune system, part of the endocannabinoid system, and I, I was very interested in that. There were no conferences in the United States, so I had to fly to Europe to attend this. And um, it, it was very, it was an interesting conference. It was kind of my introduction to the endocannabinoid system science. But uh, this gentleman had just been released from an American prison for growing marijuana uh, to treat his glaucoma when nothing else was helping him and he was going blind. Um, his ophthalmologist recommended that he use it. He, um, he, he was, he, the government found it growing on his farm. They, they arrested him, they tried him, they convicted him, despite the fact that his ophthalmologist testified at his trial. And um, he spent a year in a maximum security prison. And I, coincidentally, was supervisor of nurses at New Jersey's only maximum security prison at the time, New Jersey State Prison in Trenton. And I well knew the kind of humiliations and degradations this man underwent on a, on a daily basis. It's, it's hard time in a maximum security prison, trust me. And uh, while he was in prison, the government confiscated his home and his farm for growing that marijuana. So this man fled to Amsterdam when he was released. He, uh, he renounced his US citizenship. He never returned to the country. And I thought that uh, I was going to try to help stop this from happening to other patients. Slide, please. So I, I took my um, research to the New Jersey State Nurses Association. They endorsed medical marijuana in 2002. And uh, in 2003, I met Jim Miller, who was pushing his wife Cheryl's wheelchair around the state. And she was a uh, medical marijuana patient, an illegal medical marijuana patient. Uh, but marijuana was the only thing that really helped her muscle spasticity with her uh, multiple sclerosis. So we formed the Coalition for Medical Marijuana in 2003. Uh, next slide, please. And uh, we were instrumental in getting the medical marijuana introduced, medical marijuana bill introduced in 2005, and seeing it through five years of hearings and uh, and having it signed into law by Governor Corzine. And uh, uh, medical marijuana finally became available here in New Jersey in uh, 2012, December. Uh, slide, please. So. Um, in 2014, we endorsed legalization based on marijuana's enormous therapeutic potential, and also um, uh, that it makes medical marijuana, we say it's the best way to get the right medicine to the most people. It's, uh, it makes marijuana like an over-the-counter drug like, like aspirin that adults can purchase, and um, it, it can really improve public health in New Jersey. Next slide, please. And also in, in view of the harms of prohibition, the uh, 32,000 marijuana arrests for possession and uh, what that does to uh, the uh, people who are involved and drawn into the criminal justice system by this, it really creates second-class citizens who have uh, difficulty with employment, education, housing, <clears throat> and social life. Uh, next slide, please. And um, unintended consequences of marijuana prohibition, the sales to minors, um, uh, and uh, absent parents, you know, the, the justification for uh, uh, keeping marijuana prohibited because of uh, it's, they, they want to do it for the children, it seems to me completely wrong-headed. Uh, uh, this has a devastating effect. Uh, marijuana arrests have a devastating effect on a person's life, and, uh, you know, arresting a parent of a child has a devastating effect not only on the children, but on the, the families and the, the um, 
the community in itself. So uh, we also have diminished care of diminished trust in healthcare providers when we have to parrot the federal government's insistence that marijuana is as dangerous as heroin. Um, I'm also a spokesman for Doctors for Cannabis Regulation, a physician, national physicians organization uh, dedicated to the legalization and effective regulation of marijuana. They say that marijuana prohibition is ineffective, harmful, and um, unnecessary. And slide, please. Uh, so these are some of the, for medical marijuana, uh, one of the best conferences you can go to is the Patients Out of Time Conference. Uh, it happens every year uh, throughout the country. Uh, two years ago, it was in Jersey City. Uh, I'm on the advisory board of Patients Out of Time. Americans for Safe Access is another uh, good um, organization, national organization. The Society for Cannabis Clinicians does a lot of great work in California. Uh, uh, I'm a founding board member of the American Cannabis Nurses Association. Uh, Project CBD is probably where you can get all the information you want about uh, CBD. The answer page has CMEs for physicians, and the National Organization for the Reform of Marijuana Laws was one of the first organizations to advocate for medical marijuana. And um, marijuana reform, you have New Jersey United for Marijuana Reform, the Drug Policy Alliance, Marijuana Policy Project, Law Enforcement Against Prohibition, and Doctors for Cannabis Regulation. And final slide, and this is um, some information about my organization. We, uh, we have meetings on the second Tuesday of every month at the Lawrence Township Library outside of Trenton, and everyone's welcome to attend. Thank you. I, I should note that um, I, you sent in these slides, I would assume, I would assume to, to, to Steve? Uh, I gave you right, uh, Rachel. Okay, yeah. Um, I should note that we after we're, after the, this whole thing, we put everything up on the um, uh, on the website, so you probably don't have to um, take down the notes if for for, for, for future reference. <clears throat> Please, Diane. Yeah. Good morning, everyone. Uh, my name is Dr. Diane Colello, and I'm the director of the state's poison control center. New Jersey has one poison center, which you may know. We're in Newark, New Jersey, at Rutgers University. And I'm really excited to be here and talk with all of you today. This is an exciting space, a lot of change. Um, you know, medical cannabis has been employed for a lot of truly debilitating conditions, for which I, as a doctor, know there's, can be really hard to treat and can um, really cripple a patient and they're kind of trying to carry out their lives. So my background is as a, uh, I started as a pediatrician, I'm still a pediatrician, <laughs> um, and I'm a medical toxicologist. I'm certified in uh, pediatrics and pediatric emergency medicine, toxicology, and addiction medicine. And um, so a lot of interest in, you know, kind of seeing how this will evolve for care of those chronic debilitating conditions, but also with an eye on, I think, challenging all of us to critically evaluate the gaps in the science and where those need to be filled in, right? You know, we, I think um, the approval of cannabis for a lot of debilitating conditions makes sense because they're debilitating and there's a likelihood that marijuana will help. Uh, but the decision to do so, we should not confuse with thinking that the science is proven. There are indications for which, you know, medical cannabis has been demonstrated in solid evidence to really help. Chronic pain, 
cachexia, anorexia, uh, nausea, vomiting from chemotherapy. Patient reported spasticity for multiple sclerosis, uh, to name a few. But there are a lot of things for which we, I think, have hopeful evidence. There's optimism, but there's a lot more work that needs to be done. And that involves committing resources, you know, time, talent, treasure, to research and, you know, funding and lifting regulatory restrictions on research, which we know have hamstrung this field for a long time. And, um, you know, I think looking at states, can't, what I call cannabis pioneer states, that uh, have gone before New Jersey in enhancing and expanding cannabis access, um, like Colorado and Oregon, have done a, a fantastic job, in my opinion, of establishing a very robust scientific advisory committee, council, community, involving epidemiologists, toxicologists, pediatricians, uh, public health, pharmacology, uh, psychiatry, addiction medicine, epidemiology, um, to kind of continually evaluate the evidence as it emerges, but also evaluate and support research funding. Um, the state of Colorado specifically funds over $10 million in active research grants on, you know, let's, let's look at the efficacy for Crohn's disease, inflammatory bowel disease, amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, or ALS. Let's look at the data on driving impairment. You know, let's fund that research and commit ourselves to finding the answers. Um, so that's, I think, one facet of this that I'm very uh, glad to be engaging in this space about, because I think we're going to learn a lot and, uh, you know, kind of getting it right and really keeping our eye on this as it evolves, because it's evolving so quickly, right? We're in a revolution. And, uh, you know, kind of watching that and seeing what's going right and what needs to be tweaked uh, is going to be essential. And I do just want to spend one second talking a little bit about formulations. So as the Poison Control Center, um, you know, we know a lot about uh, safety and packaging and <coughs> prevention. and. Um, as a pediatrician, you know, that's kind of my, my origins, looking at how things can be in a, particularly in a child's environment, but just in general in an environment that can either minimize the risk of harm or of poisoning or inadvertent toxic exposures or can mitigate that risk. And, um, you know, with a lot of the, the new changes coming out with expanding formulations, I think it's going to be very important to look at, you know, dose size, pack size, how things are packaged. Not just child resistant, but child resistant resealable, opaque. You know, there's already really good work, I think, happening in limiting advertising where we don't really, you know, where we don't want it, vulnerable populations, things like that. And um, I think that's, you know, everybody's ex excited when new formulations, particularly edibles, come out, but we do know that that is a particularly, I think, somewhat new and understudied area, but also, uh, you know, when you look at particularly at po calls to poison control centers, edibles kind of rise to the top of that list. So I think we got to kind of continue to engage in the discussion about how to safely proceed with that. So thanks very much okay, for having Okay, thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Um, maybe you two can share that and you two can share this. Um, I think before we go any further, one thing I would like to talk about, and I'm not sure who in the panel is, I think Jeff probably, but I don't know. Who, what's in this bill? 
Um, the bill that passed yesterday does expand the medical marijuana um, industry, whatever, um, ex expands it. It um, increases, and I do have a question here that, well, what does this mean? Does this mean that um, the governor's previous, it, it is not as expansive as the, as the governor wanted. He was talking about 100 new, new um, retail sites. He was talking about um, a lot of different things. He wanted to com completely keep it under the Department of Health. Um, he negotiated this with uh, this, the legislature. So the, it is assumed that what the legislature passed yesterday, and I mean anything can happen, so it might not happen, but it is assumed since, since the state negotiated with the legislature that this will become law, he will sign this. Um, it does not expand it as much as he wanted. One of the things is I think it goes to 20, what is it, 28? He had wanted, at one point, 100. He was, in, was trying to get 36, but 28 new facilities. Um, uh, he it so creates a, what? I, I, can, I can speak to, to what's, what's in it. Okay. I don't want to comment All right, on, Jeff, on maybe you, you probably know it but, better than me. So, so first off, I did want to just, you know, sort of thank everyone who worked so hard on it. Um, Michael's in, in the room from, from OLS. Um, I think, uh, you know, uh, all parties involved, tremendous amount of work went into it. Um, it does include uh, all of the recommendations that the Department of Health made in our Executive Order 6 report, um, which are meant to uh, really improve access for patients. Um, there's a lot related to marketplace regulation. There's a transfer uh, over time from uh, the Department of Health to a new Cannabis Regulatory Commission, which is uh, five commissioners uh, sort of overseeing the market. Um, there's uh, provisions for home delivery. There's provisions for um, uh, for other sort of new license types like micro businesses and uh, conditional licenses. Um, you know, it's it's a pretty it's a pretty complex piece of uh, of legislation. Um, uh, you know, I think on the what uh, Lee, what you were mentioning is there's there's a there's a it, it's a time limited cap on cultivation <laughs> sites only. Okay. Um, so it's it's uh, uh, limits the state to 28 for 18 months. Okay. Um, micro businesses are carved out of that. Um, uh, micro businesses on for cultivation being under 2,500 square feet feet of what we would call canopy, uh, which is like plants under light. Um, well, how many retail things will we There's no, th that will be determined ultimately by the, the commission. Okay, so. So, so a, lot of that, a lot of that is, is ultimately left up to the, to the commission in, in the bill. Um, and so, you know, ostensibly, should the bill get signed, um, then uh, uh, there would be five commissioners appointed, um, an executive director who would then be tasked with uh, figuring a lot of that stuff out. Um, you know I do. I do want to just just mention. You know, the the I think uh, most critically um, are the patient provisions. So uh, I'd say the two um, the two complaints that we get the most uh, in the program. The one most beyond any others is uh, the uh, doctor's visits. So in statute today, patients have to go back to the doctor at a minimum every ninety days, which. Yeah, when you when we're talking about people who have incurable chronic conditions um, for which they might need this therapy over time, um, that's that's a little a little ridiculous. There was a uh, you know there, there's a, there's a piece in current it's in regulation in current statute um, that has been interpreted uh, by um, the board of medical examiners and and some uh, granted they gave physicians options but many physicians have chosen to take the most 
I guess, restrictive of the options in, in uh, getting patients into the program. So many physicians uh, were requiring patients to go to the doctor four times before, um, before they were, would certify them into the program. Um, it would be ridiculous if I went to my physician and, and was, you know, he said you have, uh, he or she said you have high blood pressure and then said, oh, by the way, you got to come see me three more times before I can prescribe you medication. I mean, I, I feel like that would be almost grounds for <laughs> a malpractice suit should something, uh, you know, really bad happen in between those visits. So I, I think um, that I, I did want to highlight that because that's really where a lot of uh, our EO6 Executive Order 6 recommendations were focused is on, on the patient side of things. Um, and so that, that is all included in, in the bill. Um, one of the things, well, I did want to explain that the, the commission, or one of the things I want to ask you, the, the, the legislature wanted this commission because it wants to mimic what is going, what, how we are running the casino industry. You know, that they felt that that was working pretty well and that to have a separate organization that's just focused on cannabis um, would be ideal. But of course they were also considering that with the, and we'll have this in the next panel, but with the recreational use um, issue, that that, that that commission would control that. Now we don't have a recreational use um, bill, and we do have a medical marijuana bill, which has been run out of um, the Department of Health. So how is that going to, um, how do you think that's going to so work? I, it's still it's still pending, and, mm -hmm. and so Lee mentioned something about me talking. So you know, lawyers at Health would tell me not to talk about pending legislation at all, <laughs> and we have great attorneys who prevent me from getting into trouble. Um, so I don't. I, what I will say is hypothetically. So let's say if there you know was an if there was an agency transfer in the future related to the medicinal marijuana program, I think the number one priority above and beyond all else would be to ensure that there's no disruption to the patients. Uh, that's like number one. Um, uh, you know, we can't afford for anybody to, uh, you know, delay getting a recertification, delay getting uh, a new card. Um, you know, that's going to be, I think, any any you know hypothetical agency transfer that would be first and, and foremost the, the priority. Um, and then, you know, I, I think the the other stuff can fall can fall into place around that because at the at the end of the day, our uh, our our uh, statutory uh, charge uh, is to serve patients in New Jersey. So do you envision turning over complete control of the of the program or would you retain? I mean I can't any, get into, right, get into okay. specifics like that. Um, all, right. I, all I can say is that you know if if we were tasked with transferring authority to another agency um, it would all be about preserving uh, service for patients in the program and their caregivers. Okay. Um, one of the things in the bill though I did want to ask and and, and maybe um, Diane wants to chime in here. Uh, it increases the amount a patient can get to three ounces. Now, given the fact that um, what people may remember as their college days um, uh, consumption of cannabis, it, it, they should know that the strains are very, very much higher right now. And well, you don't think that's it's much more. All right. We can all, talk about all right. Yeah. I'll, so three ounces seems like a lot. Let me just speak to one thing because that came from uh, 
that recommendation was in our Executive Order 6 report. Certainly, the, uh, I, I would imagine that CMMNJ recommended, a lot of patient groups uh, you know, recommended it. So in our biennial report, which was released earlier this year uh, from the department, we looked at consumption. Um, and we looked at this, one of the questions we're charged with answering is, is the two ounce per month limit sufficient? And what we found is that uh, in, in any given month, uh, between six and seven percent of the patient population purchases up to that limit. If we look at uh, a six month period, uh, 25 percent of the patients in the program are purchasing up to that limit at least once in that six month period. The feedback we've heard from patients is particularly when you're dealing with conditions that, so uh, Diane mentioned Crohn's, right? So Crohn's is a, is a disease that has sort of flares and then remission. So it, it makes sense that people would need to consume or want to consume more at, at times when their disease is more active than others. Um, and so for that reason, you know, we, we recommended uh, raising, the, uh, raising the limit. Um, and I think what ultimately um, made it into the bill is raising it uh, over time uh, so as uh, it it's basically goes along with our ability to increase supply in the market. Um, uh, and can I just also chime in? So um, a few other things, and while well, I'm no longer at DOH, I was there up until two weeks ago, so uh, I feel like I can still speak to a lot of the work that we did to write EO6, uh, that report, and the subsequent reports. Um, you know, the, the original medicinal bill and the, the technical name of this bill is the Jake Honing Bill. Um, and Jake was a little boy who was suffering uh, with cancer. Uh, he ultimately passed. And his family has become so outspoken that this was the only thing that would bring their son sort of back to them when he was struggling in his final weeks. Um, and as a parent, um, I'm sure any parent in this room, you would go to the ends of the earth to give your child who's dying just a little bit better a quality of life. And Jake's parents talked about the fact that they had to, because of, because of his cancer, they would buy the cannabis at the dispensary, they would cook it down, they would turn it into either an oil or something that he could ingest, right? Um, and that they were blowing through their limit very, very quickly. And so one of the other things I'm, I'm really pleased to see that made it into this bill, um, the patient protections were so important, but for terminal patients, that there no longer is a limit. Um, just like we treat uh, you know, any other thing, when you're in palliative care, when you're, when you're a terminal patient, it is our, I think, you know, moral obligation to make anything available to you to make your life a little bit better. Um, but to your point about strains and that what you got in college maybe 30 years ago is very different than what you get in an ATC, I do want to throw out that that's um, a pretty big myth. Um, most of the uh, dispensaries here in the state of New Jersey carry a wide variety of products um, that, uh, and I can get into the weeds, no pun intended on this, um, about the levels of both THC and CBD. And I think it's really important. CBD has become sort of like the quote unquote gateway drug. Um, it has no hallucinogenic sort of properties and it has become, and I mean the gateway drug in a positive sense of the word, right? Like it has been people's entree point into cannabis as a medicinal product. CVS just announced that they're gonna start selling it. Uh, the TSA just announced that you can bring CBD products on planes with you, no problem, no problem needed. It is incredibly useful for inflammation, um, both as uh, ingested or in a topical sense. Um, but it has no hallucinogenic properties. You won't, you won't feel quote unquote high with a CBD product. THC is what we all think of as sort of you mentioned, getting high and having that feeling. And I think most of the folks in the room know this. Um, but you can walk into a dispensary and say to them, look, I'm suffering with chronic pain. Don't really wanna feel a whole lot of anything. 
I want you to help take the edge off on what I'm experiencing in my body. Um, and there are a variety of strains and a variety of different ATCs that will do just that for you. Um, and so I, I want to make crystal clear that it is not a one-size-fits-all. Um, one of the other things I'm most excited about watching what's going on in other states and what 1906 is doing in other states um, is looking at the ways that this is not just flour, right? It's not just what can you smoke. It's how can you ingest it. We're working on a tablet. Um, so to really treat this like medicine, right? To, to get this down, to extract it into a tablet. We are a pill-popping culture. And again, I don't mean that in a negative sense, but we all take, right? How many vitamins do you take in the morning, right? I've got my B12 and my D3 and my multi. And so if we're looking at low-dose cannabis products with some other benefits to it, um, I think we're moving in a place where it's not just smoking a joint, um, it's thinking about this as medicine. And so there's a lot of difference out there. I didn't want to kind of let that go un unsaid. Before we leave this point, um, how much help does, or control or whatever, does the doctor, that does the prescribing doctor have to do with this? I mean, do they, or could they, do, should they have? I mean, you go to a doctor, you need, you know, you, they, maybe your family doctor says, you know, a good, a good thing would be to uh, try cannabis for this, for this illness, but I can't, I don't have, you know, I'm not a prescribing physician, you're going to have to go see this person um, who will be the prescribing physician. When you do that, what advice do you get? What prescription do you get? Do, is it, do they tell you the kind of strains? Typically not a great deal of information coming from the physician community. Uh, in New Jersey, there is unfortunately a great deal of ignorance uh, among the physician community regarding cannabis therapy. Even those prescribing <clears throat> physicians? They typically do not uh, tell you which uh, strains to take. Uh, they refer you to the alternative treatment centers. And the alternative treatment centers are very good. The very first visit that you make to an alternative treatment center, they will sit down and talk to you about what conditions that you have, what types of strains they have available, and what type of dosage information is, is available to you. So you get that information basically from the alternative treatment centers, okay. uh, typically not from the physicians involved. Okay. Um, Chime in a little bit on the dose issue. Um, and I think, you know, when we think about the widely varied strains and concentrations of herbal cannabis, uh, some of that, I think, factors mostly into the retail uh, realm. You know, when we th think about, you know, what people becoming <clears throat> kind of cannabis toxic because they obtain a product in the retail setting that they don't realize is as concentrated or as strong. They smoke it and they become sickened. Um, and I would say that from a, <clears throat> you know, we, we think about dose size limitations or pack size limitations. Uh, they're good because they prevent a child, for example, from encountering a dose that is already even just one dose is too much for their weight. Um, and pack size, you know, it's that candy bar you buy. If there's 16 of those doses in it, you know, that, that could really cause a very significant exposure, particularly in a young child. Um, but I think from what Jackie's talking about, about the way cannabis is currently purchased in the medicinal realm, it, that is the safety of that particular thing as it pertains to dose size is less of an issue. And we do know that patients with chronic illness, uh, whether they need cannabis or they need other medications, you know, the, I think the fewer hurdles 
that are there for them to obtain the medication they need. I mean, this is the whole argument against pre-authorization for buprenorphine, for example, right? You know, the, the hurdles hurt patients, right? And so allowing people to obtain whatever they reasonably need um, is, is just better for the patients. I think we saw this also to take a page out of the opioid prescribing guidelines. You know, well-intentioned, safety-minded, but did create some obstacles for patients who genuinely need opioids for whatever reason um, and legitimate, you know, quote, legitimately need them uh, who are not in a pattern of opioid use disorder but who have a medical indication for the opioid. Now we've got restrictions in place that are well-intentioned but that can really get in the way of people taking care of themselves. And so we walk that line, I think, with dosing and limitation of, of amount that one person could obtain, um, you know, where we want to have the access and while also keeping our mind on safety. I think one of the things that's been frightening um, as a public health professional is seeing some of the products in other states that are, to your point, so highly dosed. Uh, so I, I didn't bring it with me. I usually keep it on me because I'm stunned, candidly, that it exists. Um, but there's a product that um, is sold in California. That's where a friend of mine uh, you know, in the industry purchased it. And it's about this big. It's probably like the, about, a, about the size of your thumb, more or less. And it's a jelly. And it's in like a sort of a little tin. It has 100 milligrams of THC. And on the back, it tells you that you should cut this little thing up into 16 pieces. But the whole gummy is only about as big as your thumb. And so one of the things that I think is, is, so, um, is so important as, as we move into this space is for regulators to come in and say, look, th this is a, a, a piece, an individual serving, just like we think about an individual serving of a, a bag of chips or a, a, a traditional candy bar, has X amount of calories. And you can turn it over and anybody can read exactly what is in that candy bar, bag of chips, or what have you. We need to make sure that as we're moving into the space with more and more products available, it is clearly labeled, this has five milligrams THC, five milligrams CBD, this is what else is in it, and, and folks are, are really clear. Because overall, I think we all want people who choose to consume, whether it's in the medicinal market or the recreational market, to have a pleasurable experience. You would like less phone calls, right? We would all like this to be less pol politicized. Um, and I think the way that we do that is through that safety measure, is, is really, working to say, this is what you're consuming. And if you choose, if, of your own choice, to eat five, five milligram, we have uh, little, our truffles are five milligrams, um, that's your choice as a consumer. And you, you are aware of what you are choosing to consume. But it's very crystal clear, the same way I'm aware if I'm eating the 99 cent bag of Doritos or the, you know, the, the $4 bag of Doritos, that's my choice as a consumer. But people should be able to know what they're consuming. And marijuana therapy is highly individualized. So two different people will have two different reactions to the same amount of, uh, of marijuana. So it really is a kind of a trial and error process to find what's uh, most appropriate for, for the patient's condition. And the general advice is to uh, start low and go slow you know, with any, any type of marijuana therapy. Uh, having said that, when uh, the bill was working its way through the legislature uh, between 2005 and 10, uh, their original thought was to limit it to one ounce per, uh, per month per patient. And, you know, we fought against that. And uh, we got them to increase the amount to two ounces a month. And we said that was still going to probably be insufficient for about half the patients. So. Um, 
you know, some people just need a, uh, 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 you know, seizure patients may need to have it continuously uh, and uh, through edible products that unfortunately they still have to make themselves uh, from the flowers. So uh, the amount that is required for individual patients is, is again, highly individualized. Um, but um, uh, we are very grateful to, to be working with this Department of Health uh, because, uh, you know, they, they've been very responsive to the uh, advocates' concerns. Uh, we've met with, uh, I've met with Jeff Brown and uh, Jackie Cornell, and, you know, they listened to our concerns, and, and some of the concerns made it their way into the uh, executive order. So we're very grateful for that. Uh, it's very different from uh, the previous administration, uh, when we offered to be involved in the development of the re initial regulations for the medical marijuana program, and I got a letter from the Commissioner of Health uh, from, uh, in Governor Christie's term that said they were not interested in uh, working with or even meeting with advocates at the time. So uh, we're very grateful for, for you and your work and, and, and for listening to the patients. Um, one of the things I wanted to explore is the cost, and this bill, phases out, which I think now is a six and a half percent, I'm not sure, six and a half percent tax. I don't know why we're taxing medicine, but it right now we are, and it's phasing it out, I think, over a period of time. But um, it's also, I, I, I just want people who aren't familiar with this to understand how expensive this is. Um, right now, I, I don't, I, I remember looking it up at one point. It's between, and, uh, the lowest, so without a discount, the lowest price on, on the market now per ounce is about $350. Um, with, uh, you know, for folks qualifying for discounts, it can be less than that, but it goes all the way up to, you know, $500 per ounce. Um, and New Jersey is incredibly high priced. Um, I mean, I think if you, if you think about it, it's simple economics here. It's, you know, we, we, uh, there are only six providers. Um, it's so, you know, there's not much incentive or price competition. Um, there's, uh, there's not, uh, uh, you know, uh, that's piece of it. That, you know, the, the current providers have been operating under um, a requirement to operate as nonprofits, um, which, uh, um, which, which has uh, sort of hampered their ability to raise capital. So that can, that can sort of hurt things. Um, we we looked at prices in, in the market um, in our biennial report as well. Um, we found them to be high. Uh, we think that uh, the prices are artificially suppressing demand among the patient population. Um, if you look at uh, consumption in Colorado, for example, which has a much more competitive medical market, um, in 2015, uh, patients were purchasing about 1.3 ounces per month. Um, in New Jersey, patients, if you average it across the entire patient population, uh, purchase about a half ounce each per month. Um, I don't think that that's uh, in line with what's happening in other states. And I think that it's, and this is next to the doctor's visits, the cost of the product is, is the second uh, biggest complaint that we get uh, at, the, at the department. So it's certainly something that we're cognizant of. I mean, I think that, uh, you know, expanding supply is the, the number one mechanism to uh, approach uh, price. Um, next to that, you know, I think long term, um, given that it is a medical product, um, it is a treatment, you know, we need to look at ways that uh, insurance can get involved in it. Um, and, uh, you know, there's already some, uh, honestly, a, a few precedents in New Jersey. There's a couple uh, court cases um, uh, workers, where workers' comp judges have actually directed that uh, workers' comp insurance companies cover medical cannabis. Um, now, I think we're a long way. There's going to be, need to be action at the federal level. Exactly. Um, we're, we're a long way from there. Exactly. Um, but, I mean, I think, I, I think that's where we need to get to. But in the meantime, you know, the number one 
uh, I guess, mechanism we have uh, for dealing with price is just is just increasing supply because I think we're you know we obviously need more uh, more producers we need more dispensaries um, and uh, um, you know I don't think we're going to get to like like California prices um, uh, but uh, um, or uh, certainly not Oregon because their their market is kind of dysfunctional um, given uh, how many providers they have um, but you know we can certainly get price down so it's more affordable for patients. Uh, somebody in the audience asked, because of these barriers, I mean, because of the price, because of, you know, why not, I mean, essentially, I think this is what they were trying to say, why not uh, allow people to grow their own? I mean, shouldn't, shouldn't you, I mean, personal cultivation, I mean, why can't you do that? Why, why must you go to an alternative treatment center? I mean, I can speak for what's in the statute currently and you know it's it's not per, it's not permitted by the statute you know it's, it's but why well, what do you, you know, think about that well we're, we were very strong advocates for home cultivation uh, especially for medical patients or at least for medical patients uh, the um, you know, home cultivation guarantees that patients can have access to medical marijuana regardless of their income. So many patients have been impoverished by their illness that they simply cannot afford the prices at the alternative treatment centers. Adding the tax onto it is uh, just another insult to their injury. Uh, and uh, we were opposed to the sales tax when the Christie administration first imposed it. Uh, you know, we cited the Division of Taxation's bureau, uh, uh, recommendation that no medicine in New Jersey is taxed, not over-the-counter medication nor prescription medication. Uh, but nevertheless, the, the tax was imposed and it, it continues today. And although there is uh, at least a, a timeline established for the getting rid of the tax. But in addition to making marijuana available, uh, the, the particular strain that, uh, uh, that HomeGrow would, would allow, the particular access to the particular strains that are most effective for individual patients is kind of guaranteed when you have a HomeGrow uh, provision for patients. So many times patients will find that they, they have you know, a, a wonderful strain of marijuana at one of the alternative treatment centers, and the next time they go back, that, oh, that strain's not there. So uh, you know, this would guarantee that they have the, the access that they need, and, f and, finally, and finally, there is uh, empowerment of patients to produce their own medicine and to consume it and to titrate it according to their needs. You know, this removes the pharmaceutical industry from the equation. This removes the uh, health insurance uh, industry from the equation. And it, it, it empowers patients to take control with their own health by having uh, home cultivation. So we're, we're very strong advocates for it. And we hope that uh, eventually this will be permitted for patients. All the, all the states that have legalized marijuana have a home, home cultivation provision. Uh, over half the states that have uh, 30, of the 33 states that have medical marijuana generally have uh, home cultivation for for patients, and it's not a problematic thing. Uh, you know, we, uh, obviously this is New Jersey, and so we could anticipate having a very tightly regulated home cultivation program uh, that may have little tags for each plant and a limit of six plants that uh, addresses uh, 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 the concerns of law enforcement. Okay. Okay. Did you? Did you want? I, I have another. I have another um, question, and 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 maybe Ken, you, you may be the. Pro best person to answer it. We ha have a number of questions of, this is still illegal on the federal level. So how can caregivers and places like nursing homes, um, what, you know, how can they administer the, this, this medicine or should they? I mean, what's, what's the status of that? Well, they absolutely should. 
<clears throat> you know, the, uh, I, I advocate for the forgotten population. I've worked in psychiatric hospitals. I've, I've seen a patient die right in front of me from status epilepticus. Uh, despite doing everything possible for the patient, uh, IV, IV Valium and, and sending them off to the emergency room, they nevertheless died. And so, you know, many of the patients in, in, in uh, state psychiatric hospitals and facilities for the developmentally disabled, for in group homes, uh, you know, these are patients who have qualifying conditions for marijuana therapy, and it's very important to meet these, the needs of these patients. And we can do this in, with the provision for institutional caregivers that is in this, uh, this bill, and, um, uh, and, and we should definitely pursue this. Uh, so um, it, it, it's, it's a great idea, it's a, it's a, it's a needed idea, and uh, you know, I think that it's a um, uh, sort of establishing a pilot program for institutions is what this bill does. Uh, uh, very carefully uh, screens the institutional caregivers and makes sure that the institutions have policies and procedures in effect uh, to uh, assure the safety of you know, the entire process of uh, having so an So even, even nursing homes and hospitals? I mean, they they wouldn't be uh, delivering this, would they? I mean, this would care to this would apply to nursing homes and 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 acute care facilities. Yes, right now it's outrageous that a patient who is on medical marijuana, for example, for seizure control, if he goes into the hospital for a broken leg, the hospital wants to discharge him if he has for using his medical marijuana that could be a life-saving uh, provision for him. So, you know, this is, this is an outrage, and it's really something that needs to be addressed and that this bill begins to address. So um, just quickly on that, um, the, uh, I think the uh, healthcare system as a whole is, is not the best at accommodating the use of uh, medical cannabis. Um, Ken mentioned the institutional caregiver provisions, which, which are in the bill. Um, you know, I think there's going to be uh, need to be a whole lot of education um, with the, with hospitals, nursing facilities, um, I think the, the third uh, biggest, com most frequent complaint we get and the hardest to deal with is like, my kid is in a center and needs, you know, a high CBD strain for his seizures or her seizures and they won't do it, they won't touch it. Um, and, you know, I, I, you know my, I think it's, unless something happens federally, facilities that rely on federal funding are, are, are going to be very hesitant to get anywhere near this, um, regardless of what happens at the, at the state level. Um, we do see some examples from uh, around the country um, where um, hospitals are more amenable to it, um, but it's very, very few and far between. Um, and so, you know, I think if for institutions where, um, you know, for hospitals, I mean, probably like, you know, 99, 90% plus of their funding comes from uh, federal sources. Uh, it, it can be it can be a very uh, you know t terrifying pro uh, provision for them. Um, so, but I do think I mean the 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 health system needs to get better at accommodating this. The patient population is only going to continue to grow both here in New Jersey and elsewhere, um, and so it's going to be something that that we're all going to need to work together to address. And then everything everything Jeff just said plus. Um, when you work together with somebody for as long as we have, we've traded, we've been on jobs together for almost a decade, so um, I could just say ditto. Um, but um, the one thing I, I also want to highlight is with the addition of chronic pain and anxiety um, to, to the roles, to the, to the ability to, to be, um, you know, receiving coverage, imagine that you're struggling with anxiety and you use the broken leg example, right? The last thing you want to do 
in an instance where someone is already going through an acute medical crisis is take away the thing that keeps them, you know, feeling their best. And so this is not a, um, it's not a, a wild idea to think about the fact that you will interact with the healthcare system and have anxiety. I mean, it's a, it's a known diagnosed thing and talking about how when you, just the sense of walking into the doctor's office, let alone in a crisis situation, um, how high your anxiety can spike. And so to take that away from people is, is really, I, I think, a, a, dangerous, uh, a dangerous idea. Yeah, I think this all calls into question or into light the fact that the process by which in this country we evaluate and release medications is through the FDA, right? You know, the FDA has a very, you know, pretty robust review process for bringing new drugs on the market, evaluating adverse effects, and also for establishing how that drug can be administered, in what settings, by what people. And man, how much easier would this be if this was an FDA-approved therapy that could then be given, you know, without all of these I think the, you know, there's so much uneasiness about how to give this institutionally in a hospital. Do we carry it on formulary or do we give the patient's own medication? And, you know, there's so many nuances and I think anxieties about it because this is very different than every other medication because it hasn't been kind of given that opportunity to go through FDA review. So obviously that's a complicated issue that requires action at the federal level. but. Um, I think it's helpful to think about medicinal marijuana and medicinal cannabis in that light. You know, it doesn't go through the same, the same process, and, and it really should. Uh, we have a number of questions about the RFA. Um, I, I guess can't we, answer any of them. Well, I, all right. Well, uh, uh, okay. I guess not. But all right. All right. All right. I guess you have something on, on the website that you're open uh, until July 1st. Now, with the bill, and if the governor should sign it, all, will there be? All I can say to this is I would expect uh, you know, some sort of communication from us in advance of July 1st. Oh, OK. So that's, so, that's all, I can say, all I can say on that. OK, great. All right, because I have a lot of questions about that. <laughs> um, OK, um, let's see. Uh, maybe you can expand on. Um, Except I'm not sure what this meant. How can how does it um, work with state licensure, licensure, uh, for most professionals? But I don't know what they mean by professionals. Um, do they mean what? Medical. Medical professionals, meaning doctors and prescribers, yeah. nurses. Okay. All right. And do nurses have to be licensed to to deal with cannabis? Oh, the nurse practitioners. Yes, but. Yeah. Well, let me let me just speak to, to what we do now um, and what we what we verify. Um, and obviously, should the bill become law, I think this this it not necessarily what we do, but the group of professionals that we do it for would change. Uh, but so for physicians, uh, and currently you ha under statute, you have to be an MD or a DO. Um, it, we verify two things. Well, I, I should say three things. Number one, uh, license. So you need an uh, active medical license in good standing. Uh, number two, uh, we verify CDS registration. So the physician needs a controlled dangerous substance registration. And number three, a practice location, a physical location within the state of New Jersey. So for uh, physicians, uh, as long as they have those three things, 
um, then they are able to uh, recommend medical cannabis as a therapy to patients. It takes uh, all of you know three to five minutes to fill out the form uh, in our registry to sign up, um, and then it's uh, we're connected to the Board of Medical Examiners database, so that that stuff can be verified uh, pretty quickly. Uh, but that's what we do now um, uh, to the extent that's helpful. Um. And so that would be pro uh, appropriate now. For, it would be appropriate for advanced practice nurses to uh, join in the, um, um, be part of the uh, recommending um, healthcare professionals along with physician's assistants. So uh, we argued that uh, dentists should also be allowed uh, to be, um, because they also prescribed opioids and veterinarians, because animals also have endocannabinoid systems and they suffer from many of the diseases that, uh, that humans suffer from and that uh, cannabis, as it works for humans, can also work for Fido and, uh, and Kit Kat. <laughs> That's interesting. CBD for your dog. Okay. Uh, well, I can see it. Um, all right. One, uh, I've got a couple of questions also about the education process of the public. Um, do you know if the state or should the state be educating the public about what's available, what they should, you know, um, how they should go about it, what they should ask their doctors, anything like that? Is there an education um, function in the in either in this bill or in plans? Um, so just to speak to what we do currently, um, we've focused on two things, I think, uh, uh, both the physician community primarily and our, our uh, outgoing commissioner um, is a physician himself, so he really took it upon himself to do grand rounds. I think he's, he did 12 of them at uh, medical schools around the state. Um, you know, in total, that's thousands of physicians and other healthcare practitioners who attended those sessions. Um, myself and uh, the program director, uh, Sue Carson, uh, we we uh, go to you know professional societies. We meet with uh, patient organizations, speak at conferences, uh, spoke at a workers you know workers comp conference, speak to uh, disease uh, advocacy groups, for, particularly for diseases that are covered. Um, under our program, so um, there is not a statutory charge now to do it, but certainly it's important to do. So, so we do do it, um, and there are, I believe, there are provisions in in the bill that sort of expand that and, and establish more of a, a statutory charge uh, to do those things. But uh, nonetheless, um, it's something that's important to us. We understand that there needs to be education in the community. I will say that, that this is this is a a, a, a treatment where oftentimes the patient community knows a lot more than the physician community about it. Um, and so it, that's why we've focused really on the healthcare providers uh, more so than the patients, because the patients come in and meet with us and they know more about it than we do. So, um, I mean, I think, uh, I think that's, that's the reality here um, and, uh, um, and that, that's why we've focused our educational efforts where we have. Um, as you move yeah. down this, maybe somebody can relate to this too. Uh, I mean, a a explain this, I don't know um, and the plans to educate, um, get this info into PMP. I'm not sure what PMP is, but prescription monitoring program. Oh, okay, right. Um, okay. I can tell you that we're currently uh, working on. Uh, it's a goal to have integration with the prescription monitoring program, um, and uh, you know I think we're working out some some things on on the uh, you know data security side, but um, uh, that is that is a goal in the future. 
We're very grateful for Commissioner Elnahau's efforts to educate the physician community in New Jersey. Uh, you know, the endocannabinoid system was discovered in the 1980s and 1990s. It wasn't taught in, in uh, medical school. It wasn't taught in nursing school. And, um, you know, the, uh, there, and, and there really is very little incentive for physicians to go out and learn about this endocannabinoid system. And here is a new system, a newly discovered system in the human body that interacts with all the other systems in the human body and, and that, uh, whose main role is to produce homeostasis in the body. So it, it's, a, it's an incredibly important uh, system. It's an incredibly important uh, advance in biochemistry. And, uh, and, and, and we encourage uh, you know, healthcare professionals to learn about it. I tell young uh, people just you know, to hook your, hook your wagon to this endocannabinoid system because I've been following it since the 90s and there are new discoveries constantly ab uh, about the importance of this system and how it interacts with the other systems to, to produce health. So uh, we're very grateful for that. Um, and, and we're also grateful that the, the bill um, would establish the um, um, medicinal marijuana review panel to develop uh, a, um, a program of education for physicians and for healthcare professionals uh, about these about the endocannabinoid system, and um, and 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 how it works in the human body. Uh, so um, so thank you thank you for that work and also for dosing and administration guidelines for uh, medical marijuana, which are very important. Um, I also think that this is a place where industry can be playing a much larger role. Um, and I'm really excited that one of the things, I have a long laundry list of to-dos uh, at 1906, but one of them, and Ken, you're on my list to hit up for coffee and to pick your brain some more. Um, you were one of our first meetings when we got yeah. to the department um, because you've just been doing this work for so long and are, are really a pioneer here in Jersey. So, th thank, so you. thank you for that. Um, but is to build out um, a, a physician-centered education platform. Um, so that, uh, and as Jeff said, patients are walking in and they know the benefits already. So it is not uh, as much a, as a public educational campaign as it is a physician education campaign. And so one of the things that we're really committed to doing, again, because we have a product that is, and I don't know if the slides ever came up with the, the five that we have, we're, we're up to six different experiences in, in our uh, company. Um, our best-selling product is a product called Midnight, um, and it's to help you sleep. Um, and we are working to actually do a, um, a, a true uh, IRB sleep study on our product. And then we'll be able to go to a physician and say, look, if you are talking to folks who are struggling with insomnia, um, now insomnia is not one of the current existing medical conditions, but many folks know that insomnia is, is, is beneath other issues, right? If you're struggling with other chronic health needs, insomnia oftentimes is dovetailed right into that. And so being able to say, hey, here's a product, and it won't leave you groggy, it won't leave you feeling kind of out of it, and I as a physician know what I'm telling you to take. Um, one of the earlier questions was, what can a physician expect? What can a physician tell someone when they go into an ACC? And it is kind of like the great unknown. How much flour? I don't know. Try it. See what you want. Um, part of what I think that where the industry is going is to have measured, you know, products to say, here's five milligrams of this. You can take this. It will help you sleep. Oh, you have anxiety? To one of these one milligram THC CBDs. You won't even really feel anything. And some of, some of them are so low dose that we have, it's like a glass of wine. But if you're struggling to get on that airplane, right, and you're, you're making the, the judgment call of, do I have two glasses of wine at the airport or do I have one of these? I mean, that's, that's I think, what is really exciting is that the, a, a role industry can play in that education to improve people's lives and work more directly with physicians. Okay. 
just want to piggyback off your comment about the endocannabinoid system. Uh, so it's really true. There's a, you know, your body is already wired for the effects of cannabis. It's actually the most abundant receptor in the brain. Um, and there are endocannabinoids, endogenous compounds that, you know, like anandamide that the body releases uh, to stimulate those receptors. That's why we have it, right? We, uh, we don't have it so that man would encounter cannabis. But, um, you know, um, but I, you know, I just do want to uh, advise a, a word of caution in that we also have an endogenous opioid receptor system. You know, there, there are other receptor systems in the body that already exist, and although um, you are absolutely right, Ken, it's a, you know, it's a system geared toward homeostasis, we shouldn't just assume that, that um, you know, manipulating it from the outside will always be a positive thing. You know, we, we do have to, you know, I started off by saying we've got to really keep our eye on the science as this evolves, and uh, I just don't, uh, just would urge a word of caution that we've, we really do really have to watch that. Just because there is an existing wiring system for the compound doesn't necessarily mean that it's good in every scenario for every person at every time. Um, I, one of the uh, questions we have, a couple of the questions we have, goes to the whole issue, and I know this from other people who have said to me that one of the, their concerns is um, prescribing for mental health, um, whether it's anxiety or whatever, and um, there's been a lot of stories recently about um, the ER seeing a real uptick in, in uh, problems with over you know, overindulging, you know, um, but the prescription is really for mental health issues. So somebody has a mental health issue, they take too much cannabis, they end up in the ER with a psychosis. I know a doctor, I have a friend who's a doctor who's very concerned about it. I get a lot of mail on this, and the Washington Post this week had a really big story on, on this concern about the ER. Do you want to talk about that? Sure, yeah, I think it's a, you know, a two-sided issue. On the one hand, we think that cannabis may be helpful for a variety of mental health conditions. Obviously, anxiety is the one we talk about the most. Um, but you know, when you look at people doing efficacy research, it's some of it is geared toward mental health conditions. Uh, but we do have this issue of drug emergent psychosis, and um, there was just a study uh, that came out of Colorado looking at just an increase in adult ED visits after liberalization. And a substantial portion of those were for acute psychiatric emergencies. So, you know, it's not just an overdose phenomenon, but in some patients who, you know, just have a bad experience, they either get too much or there's something about that strain that doesn't agree with them or in some cases it's adulterated, they develop severe panic and agitation and in even some cases psychosis, which basically means hallucinations and delusions. Uh, so I think this is an area, again, of evolution where we really need to get, uh, get answers because you know, I think both, both uh, sides of this coin have merit, but we do need to really watch that. Just to... Uh I guess set up the next panel. Um, I think um, a lot of a lot of those concerns, and and certainly you know there are some medical uh, states where where you get uh, where, where we've we've heard those concerns. Um, 
but I think a lot of that comes when, when you have uh, legalization yes. of, of adult use. Um, and I would just say, that, you know, being at the Department of Health, that that's why it's critical to have public health at the table um, in, in any sort of uh, rollout of uh, adult use cannabis. Um, they need to have a voice. Uh, public health has to be uh, there. Certainly researchers need to be empowered to uh, look at some of these issues and, and really provide accurate data so that policymakers can make the right choices. Um, I mean, I think it's, it's, uh, um, uh, it's a new frontier here, uh, and we're all, you know, we're all figuring it out, but it's, it's critical to really keep, a, keep an eye on those public health impacts. Yeah. Our organization was very instrumental in getting post-traumatic stress disorder approved as a qualifying condition. Uh, it took us several years in New Jersey. Uh, we, uh, you know, we approached the Department of Health with a petition for rulemaking. Uh, in 2014, they turned it down. So we went to the legislature and we, we uh, talked to the legislature and we got, uh, we got them to introduce a bill and we had uh, veterans come to testify about uh, with uh, bags full of empty pill bottles that the VA had um, prescribed for them for their you know, ineffective treatment of, uh, of uh, PTSD. And, um, and we got PTSD passed by the legislature, and that was the very first addition to the medicinal marijuana program qualifying conditions in 2016, and Governor Christie signed it into law. Uh, so we were very pleased with that because, you know, uh, 22 veterans are committing suicide every day because, typically because of the um, poor um, pharmaceutical uh, response to uh, post-traumatic stress disorder. And, um, and so we're very glad for that. But also we're very glad because it was the first mental or emotional condition that was approved by the Department of Health here in New Jersey. And subsequently they've uh, approved anxiety. And we believe that uh, this is just uh, the tip of the iceberg of the mental and emotional conditions that marijuana can be useful for. Uh, we believe it can be helpful for uh, uh, ADHD, for uh, uh, some spectrum of the uh, bipolar disorder, uh, and, and possibly even for schizophrenia. Uh, there are some studies being done in Europe with CBD for schizophrenic patients. So, um, you know, uh, there, it, it's a nuanced discussion. Yes, you know, I mean, there, there, there are possibilities that uh, uh, marijuana can precipitate a psychotic crisis. Uh, certainly, in, in, certainly in a vulnerable population, uh, but then so many other drugs can precipitate a psychotic crisis too, including alcohol, including uh, uh, breaking up with a uh, you know a, a significant other. So um, you know to to you know uh, to use that as a justification for uh, marijuana uh, prohibition, we think is completely wrong, and also um, that um, uh, to um, let's see, I just kind of lost my train of thought there. Um, the, that uh, we should not just focus on the negative aspects of it, but also the possible therapeutic aspects of, of marijuana for mental illness. I think the one thing too, and, and you mentioned earlier discussion of the commission um, and, and that movement, um, Unlike casinos, uh, there is true public health ramifications of a recreational market. There's obviously public health ramifications here on the medicinal side as well. Um, but there is going to be, uh, we talked about the physician engagement piece. In a recreational market, there, there does become a very uh, dramatic pivot to a consumer facing piece. And, and we've seen this in states that have, have gone that route, um, much in the same way that we are all accustomed to seeing the signs in bathrooms about drinking responsibly, or in women's rooms, drinking responsibly, uh, you know, drinking responsibly and not drinking if you're pregnant, right? It has become ubiquitous. We, 
we are all just accustomed to seeing those public health messaging um, around tobacco, around alcohol. And so in a recreational environment, um, there will be a very critical role um, for that consumer-facing, public-facing exposure. And again, it's, it's folks who don't know what they're ingesting because they've never consumed it before. And somebody says, here, try this gummy. It's cool. It's great. Yay. Um, and then they wind up in the ED because that gummy that's the size of their thumb that they think is one serving is 16 servings. And so um, how we can make sure to inform consumers um, to kind of, as you said, go slow, go easy. How did you say it? Uh, start low and go slow. Yeah, there you go. Start low and go slow. But there will be a very uh, significant um, need for that. The other piece, uh, and it's sort of been mentioned here and there, it, the, the absence of research. And some of this is tied to federal funding and, the, and descheduling. Um, but 1906 is committed, um, and I think, I hope more and more folks in the industry are committed to actually throwing our profits behind research. And so that sleep study, we're doing out of our own pocket. We're not obviously getting any federal funding to, to do that. And we hope to do more and more and more things on um, anxiety, on uh, a variety of different things, because we realize that there's, without, an, uh, without research, right, in the absence of research, there's no grounds to say, well, we know that this can be safe because look at what we've done, right? We've done this true IRB. We've studied it over six, eight, 12 weeks with a whole series of different patients and made it more legitimate as opposed to very anecdotal. And so I would just encourage everyone sort of from the industry side to lean into the research component because it helps everybody. Um, when, we, when we sort of destigmatize uh, this as a product that can help people's lives uh, recreationally or medicinally, it, it helps us all. The Rutgers, uh, go ahead, Diane, but I, I, um, my understanding was that Rutgers, and I don't remember which bill this was in, um, they were going to set up a, a special research um, uh, part that would be housed at, at, at Rutgers. Is that correct? I mean, do you? I, you know, not, I'm, I'm not exactly sure. I'm looking at some colleagues from Rutgers in the audience. I'm not sure exactly where okay. that is, but. Um, Neither I, am I. I just wanted to comment uh, a little bit scientifically on, I applaud the industry-sponsored research, and I think it's an important component of establishing the science, um, but also the real need for public funding. And for, you know, as a, as a physician, when I evaluate research, you know, you must always evaluate some industry-sponsored research a bit differently, right, than you do Let's take something that's funded by the NIH or the Department of Health or what, you know, whatever. And, and that is just a matter of you know, objectivity and, and per, free from perceived or real bias. So we do need uh, both private and public funding to get kind of behind finding the answers here. But this goes to the whole point of uh, being illegal federally. Right, and absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. I mean, you know, there is federally sponsored research, but it you know, you want to talk about hurdles, right? You know, there's like multi-agency review and, and there's this whole specter of the Schedule One DEA classification and it, it's, it's hard to do. There are people who are doing that, doing some cannabis research that is federally funded, but, you know, it's hard enough to get federal dollars to do research without, you know, this gigantic issue in the way. Um, uh, we got to wrap this up and we will have another, but I'll, I'm, I have a couple of questions that I did want to ask before, well, one general question uh, that I've gotten a lot of response to, um, a request for. The whole issue of things like uh, can DOH license testing labs before the commission is organized and why, um, you know, why the cultivation versus 
Um, you know, why is that here? Why, what's really getting in the way of home cultivation? All right, well, that's the home cultivation issue. Um, but there's also why was um, uh, the cultivation pushed out before other types of licenses? And I'm also con confused about the micro businesses. So. So I, I I don't want to get too in because the micro businesses are in the in the bill, um, but so a couple of things. So on on uh, testing labs right now, the the public health environmental laboratories at New Jersey Department of Health does all, all the product testing. They test cannabinoid profile. They test for heavy metals, for pesticides and fungicides, uh, as well as uh, uh, some types of mold. Um, so. Um, We've been looking at uh, getting third-party laboratories involved for uh, for a little bit now. Um, I think um, you know under current statutory authority, it's it, it it's doable, but a little challenging. Um, but um, you know, should that change in the future, I think uh, um, uh, that will uh, that will open that up. Um, but nonetheless, I think um, as we expand the market, there's going to be need for more testing. Um, there's going to be need for more frequent testing, um, and so you know. One way or another, we're going to need to accommodate that. Um, on the cultivation thing, I, um, I, the the opportunity we had announced, which will change, um, uh, is uh, um, was it splits out uh, permits, which were previously required to be vertically integrated. And when I say vertically integrated, I mean a, a business was had to do everything: cultivate, manufacture, dispense. Um, it splits it out to three different uh, what we call verticals. So it would be uh, cultivation, manufacturing, and dispensing. And I mean, the reason to do that is you get, you know, you don't have to be good at everything. You can focus on one particular part of the market. You can focus on just cultivating. You can focus on just manufacturing and taking raw plant material and turning it into medicinal product. Or you can focus, you know, if, if you're uh, a, a healthcare focused organization, don't know anything about cultivating medical cannabis, just want to focus on patient care, you can do that on, on the dispensing side. So that's why in our rules, um, uh, we moved to that mo that permitting model um, that is also uh, in, in the bill. Um, and, uh, you know, we, the, um, the announcement that we, we made that again uh, will change um, is, uh, it was for the different the different verticals. Um, it was it, we we had announced for all of them. Um, all I'll say is that uh, it, you know, cultivation probably takes the longest to get off the ground out of all three of those verticals. Um, probably cultivation, then manufacturing, then dispensing being probably the easiest. So, um, I think you know we had mentioned in the RFA that there would be a there would potentially be a staggered permitting pro process, and that's just by because of the realities of how long it takes to get each type of business off the ground. Okay, great. Um, we have another panel coming after this, and um, so many of your questions, it's a different panel, and we're going to talk about um, what's next now that um, legalization of uh, um, recreational marijuana is, is dead, but we have a, uh, for now anyway, we have a, an expert panel on that, so some of your questions Please repeat them if they weren't, uh, if they relate to that and they weren't um, answered here. Thank you. Thank you very much. We're going to take a five minute break yeah, and uh, come back and begin at 10.05. Thank you.
We will begin the adult use panel momentarily with a, um, another video clip from our content partner, NJTV. But first, I'd again, I would again like to acknowledge our sponsors without whose help this event would not be possible. It's a, it's a free event open to the public, as John Mooney had said. That is part of our mission as a news organization uh, serving the state of New Jersey and covering public policy is that these are public forum events. And um, our objective is to make them accessible to anyone in the state who has an interest in the topics that we cover and that affect all the citizens in New Jersey. And the sponsors, again, the three um, whose support is vital are Weed Maps. I'm not going to do a full read on them, but I wanted to acknowledge them again. Um, Weed Maps is a global technology platform that powers the cannabis industry. Um, Archer Law, whose uh, full service regional law firm um, is. Uh, contains a cannabis law practice which is led by industry experts who are also part of the New Jersey United Free Marijuana Reform Steering Committee. And then also the New Jersey Cannabis Industry Association, which is the state's largest nonprofit trade organization dedicated to advancing the legalization of cannabis. Um, their information is linked out on the event page from today. It'll also be on the recap page, which we will prepare. Um, summarizing all of the proceedings from today's events and will also contain the presentation materials now that they are in the public domain, um, which will be circulated to everybody who has registered for the event. So you don't need to go look for it. We will bring it to you. It will have a permanent home on the NJ Spotlight um, Round Tables tab. And um, that is, of course, um, in the public domain and available for distribution and sharing with whomever you would like. So with that, I'd like to turn it um, actually to Rachel, who's going to give us a short spot, and then over to Lee Kehoe for our adult, our adult use panel. Thanks again. Senate President Sweeney said he's given up trying to get enough votes in the Senate to legalize marijuana. He said the legislature could go ahead with a medical marijuana expansion bill that is popular in Trenton. He said it's also a good idea to pass a bill that would expunge the criminal records of those with low-level marijuana convictions. Sweeney told Michael Hill that a referendum on the ballot in 2020 is his second choice. We were attempting to get marijuana passed through the legislative process, the legalization of marijuana, and we just don't have the votes to pass it right now. So uh, I made a decision as the president of the Senate that we're going to move to a ballot initiative for the 2020, president, 2020 general election. And uh, how difficult will that be to get it on the ballot at this point? It won't be difficult at all. In fact, it, that's probably the easiest thing. You know, then it's getting it passed, which obviously I'm not going to underestimate. But a lot of the people in the state of New Jersey truly support legalization of marijuana. And I would expect it to pass pretty easily. Murphy responded here in East Windsor, where he met with local officials to talk about his 2020 budget plan. He said he basically has a mixed reaction to Sweeney's morning announcement. The expungement piece of that is enormously important. And what we came close to achieving a couple of months ago had a historic, not just expungement, but vacating of sentences of folks in the system today, uh, which, is, which, which would have been historic. So I'm, I'm all in conceptually for that. I guess the devil's going to be in the details because you, I, you know, the, the, the medical marijuana bill actually informs itself from the adult use bill, and that's going to have to, I think, be addressed. And as well as the expungement bill, 
not only informs itself from the adult use marijuana bill, um, but I'm not clear based on what was discussed this morning, and, and admittedly I've been running around and I haven't had a chance to clarify it. Um, are we expunging something in the past that is still illegal today? And I would just remind everybody that 600 people this week will be arrested, plus or minus, depending on the time of the year, but plus or minus 600 people will be arrested for low-end for marijuana offenses, 450-ish of them will be of color. So Murphy sounds like a reluctant participant in the effort to get a marijuana question on the 2020 ballot. Sweeney took a couple of swipes at the governor for their collective failure to get this through the legislature. Murphy said he rejected that, that it had been a team effort all the way. Assembly Speaker Craig Coughlin weighed in as well today saying he supports the Sweeney plan. In East Windsor, I'm Michael Aaron. Back to you, Mary Alice. Thank you. Uh, oh, yeah, Mary Alice. I wish I was, you know, more like Mary Alice. She's, uh, now that we work at NJTV, um, she's very impressive in uh, private. Okay. Um, one of the things uh, I, I'm going to ask again the panel to introduce themselves, but I do want to clarify, make sure, because people have asked me this, yes, the bill is dead. Um, we are not going to see this bill passed by the legislature this year or probably next. I think this entire effort was um, a big disappointment to both the governor and the legislators, but they, what the legislators will be doing is passing, putting, putting it on the ballot for 2020. Remember, that's the presidential year where um, Donald Trump will be on the ballot. So I think the Democrats feel pretty confident. Of course, you know, you never know, um, particularly since you got to ask why it didn't pass in the legislature if this was so popular. But, um, you know, they're, they're pretty confident that their plans will go forward after that. We're very lucky, actually, to have, um, it's Farouk, right? Um, Fuquan, Fuquan, I'm sorry. Fuquan on the panel because he actually um, helped, if not was the primary author of the bill that died when he worked for the Senate Majority Office. Um, anyway, let's have the panel introduce Hello. us. I'm Fuquan Muzan. I'm currently the chair of the Cannabis Law Practice Group at McElroy, Deutsch, Mulvaney, and Carpenter but that has only been going on for the last few weeks. The four years prior to that, I was the general counsel for the Senate Majority Office. And in that role, I was sitting on the front row of that bus headed towards the legalization of marijuana for everyone 21 and older. And I was sitting there when the bill was 67 pages and Nicholas Scatari was the only person talking about it. Then all of a sudden it started gaining some momentum. People started weighing in. Now the bill's 120 pages. Then they let me drive the bus a little bit, a little distance. Next thing you know, it's 200 pages. And I'm sitting on this bus with no seatbelt when it crashed and burned <laughs> a half a mile from the finish line. Very, very painful accident. But while, we, while the bill got so comprehensive, one of the reasons, and I think probably one of the main reasons, is that we wanted to think about justice at all, at all times. And not just social justice, term you hear all the time, but economic justice as well. So social justice-wise, we wanted to make sure that people that were victimized by our prior bad policies related to marijuana would get a second chance. So we wanted expungements to be free. 
We want it to be robust. We want everyone to know about it. And we also wanted to send a message to the world not to discriminate in the meantime against people that had these minor marijuana offenses on their record. Had to think about economic justice as well. What we didn't want is three big conglomerates taking over the New Jersey marijuana industry. We didn't want a situation where you need a hammer, you look for the closest Home Depot or you need a Tylenol, and you look for a CVS. We actually wanted to have mom-and-pop hardware stores. Remember those? And we wanted to have corner pharmacies. Remember those? Pharmacy knew your name. So to do that, we placed the marketplace restrictions. You can only have one license for 18 months. Micro licenses became an idea for smaller companies and conditional licenses. And we wanted to create an office of minority women and disabled vets to make sure 30 percent of the licenses went to people from those groups. Um, we understand that there may be some economic inequalities with some of the things that we're trying to do. And at least in my firm, we began thinking about how to merge this investment pool that everyone wants to get involved in it with the people that have the expertise, they have the business mind, they have a good plan, but they need a couple of dollars, right? So we're trying to figure out a way to get the funding there. Um, what we haven't been talking about, and I hope we do start talking about, is making sure that the racial disparities that exist with the current way our laws are enforced do not follow us as we continue to make some things legal and some things not legal. I not want to be sitting here four years from now talking about how it's three times more likely for a black man to be arrested for underage use or for driving under the influence of marijuana or for selling marijuana without a license. So as we endeavor to build this billion-dollar, multi-billion-dollar industry, we can't do so with the expense of social justice, economic equity, and some prosecutorial fairness. Well, thank you. Good morning. My name is Kelly Hikes. I'm the Director of Government Relations for Weed Maps. Um, I think you kind of got a commercial about what Weed Maps does a little earlier today. But basically, we're the oldest and largest technology company that services the cannabis industry. And we have a standalone shop called WM Policy that I'm honored to work for. And what we do, what our job is, is to do um, comparative analysis across every market in the world that has legal cannabis and identify best practices so that when um, when a state or when a local government decides that they want to move towards legalization, when they have their priorities in place, we can help them achieve those goals by giving them best practices from all across the world and giving them a perspective that will, or helping them tweak that language or that best practice um, to be able to achieve the goals of their community based on their population. So a lot of the things that we focus on is, um, you know, I, I tell my kids, or my kids tell people that my job is to make pot boring and legal. Um, I talk about tax rates, I talk about density issues, I talk about packaging and how to keep people safe. Um, but my personal background is uh, public health and local government. And so I really come to this from a perspective of, of harm reduction. It's not, are we going to move towards legalization? It's dealing with the reality that the majority of people will, will use cannabis at some point in their life, and they deserve a product that has been tested and is safe and is legal to consume. They deserve to have um, the safest products available, and they don't need, they need a place to be able to do that where they're taken out of the illegal system. And, um, and so that's where we kind of come from, from at WM Policy, looking to make cannabis legal, accessible, and safe. Um, 
I, I think it's really important for me to note that um, while I, I totally uh, respect people that want to declare the bill dead, um, it's premature to call the bill dead. Um, it definitely was involved in a fiery crash, but I think it was, it's probably more appropriate to say that the bill is in a coma. And um, I may be the Pollyanna of pot in New Jersey, but I don't think it's, it's not dead yet, and I'm still holding out hope. I'm ready to breathe life into it. Um, we have a legislative session that will likely end um, in a couple of weeks. Uh, or I'm sorry, no, they'll go on break in a couple of weeks, but that, that means that they have three or four months to work diligently to come to a compromise. 60% of New Jerseyans want legalization, and they don't want to wait two or three years that it will take to go through this ballot process. So I think that if we all work together and we explain to leadership um, by putting a little po political pressure on, that we will be able to bring those folks to the table and the bill can be revived. Um, and whether it happens before the end of the year in lame duck or if it happens in the next session, um, I, I'm holding out hope. So thank you. Good morning. I'm Lloyd Freeman, uh, and I am a partner and the chief diversity officer at Archer Law, which is based out of Haddonfield uh, down in South Jersey. Um, I am in our cannabis law group, um, kind of what uh, Fruquan alluded to at his firm as well. And the way that we've structured our cannabis law practice at Archer is really a, um, uh, a conglomerate, if you will, of a bunch of different practice groups that can really bring all that expertise into the area of cannabis law. Um, because there will be labor and employment issues that come up, there will be land use issues that come up, uh, there will be real estate issues that come up, et cetera, to really make sure that we are offering, um, uh, I guess, a holistic service uh, to all of our clients who want to get in the cannabis space. Uh, where I've focused most of my attention, um, because our, our firm has had, I guess when Fruquan was just putting the wheels on that bus, our firm was, um, was getting our group together uh, in the cannabis space. And where I've really focused my attention has been on the social justice elements uh, behind it. The business case for the legalization of marijuana, I don't think that we really have to belabor that. Everyone knows that this is certainly um, uh, a, a very lucrative business. Um, but when you get into um, the, the penumbra of social justice and how marijuana actually falls under it, um, I think the governor mentioned on the video clip that was played before we introduced ourselves about how there were about 200 or so uh, arrests that would likely happen this week in New Jersey uh, for marijuana possession. The 600, pardon me. The number that we didn't hear was how many black and brown people well, he represent. He did. He said like 450. Of them. Maybe I couldn't hear over yeah. here. <laughs> so I was like 200. Okay, here we go. That's why I like Phil Murphy. Um, so, so that's really what we want to focus because you do want to look at the, the disparate uh, numbers of people uh, and communities of color who are being impacted by the um, uh, uh, marijuana and it uh, being uh, illegal in New Jersey. And so, whereas you know we have looked at other states and how they have approached this issue, um, and you can already look at what some of the, um, I guess, fallout effects of what. Uh, the decriminalization of marijuana would be, I really think that that um, should not be lost upon everyone in New Jersey. We can talk about whether or not, you know, the bill, uh, you know, is dead or being revived or on life support, et cetera, but I don't think that we can argue with the fact that the system is broken um, and it needs to be fixed. And we really do have a bunch of people in New Jersey who are currently being affected, not just those individuals who have those criminal records, we're talking about their families, we're talking about their communities, and we really have to do something to fix that. So by way of expungements or by vacating sentences, um, what could really be those positive uh, um, spillouts of 
the decriminalization of marijuana are huge. They're really huge, and they need to be underscored as much as the economic benefits are underscored. Um, so that is really why I spend a lot of my time and my focus, um, and that is, of course, what I would like to continue to speak about this morning. My name is Kevin Sabet. I'm the fly in the ointment, I think, up here, but that's always good. Um, it's always good to have an alternate point of view, I think. Uh, Many of you might know I'm the president and co-founder of SAM, Smart Approaches to Marijuana, which was co-founded with myself uh, when I left the Obama administration. I was the lead for marijuana policy for President Obama's Drug Policy Office. And when I left, I founded SAM with former Congressman Patrick Kennedy, now, now a New Jersey resident. Uh, and we founded SAM because we think there's a false dichotomy that's often presented in these discussions, and I've been hearing it all day here as well, unfortunately. And that dichotomy is that we either have to legalize and commercialize marijuana, uh, like the way that that bill uh, uh, did, or we have to incarcerate, um, prohibit, stigmatize, and uh, hurt uh, hurt people as a result of our drug laws. And we actually think we can have policies that don't fall into either of those two extremes. Uh, why I'm not a believer at all in the legalization of marijuana and why my organization led the fight against it and stood in front of that bus to, to, um, to stop what was happening with all due respect, uh, and, and we were, were very happy about what happened, was that um, for, uh, the legalization is tantamount to the commercialization of marijuana. Uh, right now, marijuana, the marijuana industry uh, is essentially big tobacco taking over, Altria, Philip Morris, billions of dollars of investment. Uh, the idea that you're going to have something really cute called micro-businesses, boutiques, uh, mom-and-pop hardware. There's a reason why mom-and-pop hardware stores don't exist anymore. There's a reason why those corner pharmacies aren't doing very well. And the reason is because in this country, and if we were in Finland or Uruguay or Sweden, maybe we could be having a different conversation, but we're not. We're in a place where we put private profit in front of public health in almost every industry that we do, whether that is alcohol, whether that is tobacco, which by far is the largest global killer man has ever invented more than any weapon, or whether it's um, our prescription drugs, which while they don't kill nearly as many people as our legal drugs, alcohol and tobacco, um, they're also driven by multi-billion dollar businesses. So. Uh, I, I think there are some people with many good intentions, and I'm not questioning the intentions of anybody in this room. In fact, I know many people in this room that I disagree with on this issue, but I think have good intentions. But I think those good intentions um, are, uh, don't really matter. Because, and the reason why they don't matter is because at the end of the day, it will be about consolidation. It will be about big business. It will be about special interest groups. And I've worked for Republicans and Democrats, the revolving door of you know, lobbying special interest groups and what happens with regulations with our legal drugs is for me enough to uh, uh, say that we need to pause and we need to think if there is a smarter approach. Two hours ago, the New York State Legislature rejected the legalization bipartisan, but embraced a bill that we supported, which was the true decriminalization of marijuana in that state, and I live in New York, in that state, in my state. And I think we are missing huge opportunities here because a couple of people want to make a lot of money by saying legalization or nothing. And if you really care about social justice, if you really care about sealing those records, if you really care about uh, making sure people don't go to prison, and we have to remember these numbers like the 600 number, we're also counting people who are, would have been arrested anyway for other things and marijuana is tacked onto that. The reason why Colorado has more arrests per capita per 100,000 people now than they did before legalization 
is because criminal justice reform does not lie in reforming our marijuana laws. It lies in reforming our entire criminal justice system. And when you have systemic problems in our criminal justice system and you want to feel good about yourself, uh, to, you're legalizing marijuana and you're, do, you know, you're doing something for social justice, you really need to look at what is really going on and really look at those stats and those facts. And so the reason why you know, Ted Kennedy's son, the liberal lion of the Senate, son and myself, an Obama appointee founded SAM is because we think legalization is actually the ultimate social injustice. We think that it is communities of color uh, and, and folks who don't have a lot of resources that suffer when addiction and more drugs are in our community, when they still will be tested at work, they still will be discriminated, and the guy that looks like me who has friends in Wall Street, if I test positive for marijuana at work, I'll find a job. I'll, I know people, I'll be able to, I'll be just fine. If I need treatment, I need to go to Malibu and spend 100,000 a month, I will be just fine. But the guy that lives 10 subway stops north of me from where I live in the village is not gonna be just fine and is gonna have a lot of problems. And that's why we saw Senator Rice lead the effort here in New Jersey. It's why I think uh, there is not a uniform view in communities of color. In fact, our biggest allies have been folks like the NAACP in Illinois and Michigan, um, folks like, you know, faith leaders, other community activists who see that, um, you know, uh, this is not a net benefit. And we should reform our laws. We definitely need to do that. But to legalize and commercialize is, is many steps too far. So that's really why we started, Sam, what our opposition in the state is about. And one final note about polling. Uh, we also did polling that validated the FDU polling that you probably saw, which found that when you give people options, other than legalization or nothing. In other words, when you say, all right, you actually have more than one option, which you do. I mean, policy isn't about one or one option, you know, two options, yes or no. It's actually about different, you know, different um, policy plans. And when you give people multiple plans, decriminalization, expungement, looking at medical, looking at, and we never talk about prevention and treatment, looking at legalization as well, the support for legalization falls dramatically. In other words, the support for legalization isn't because everybody wants to get high and wants to go buy pot. It's because a lot of them think that, I guess it's the only way we can have social justice, economic justice, et cetera, and so they vote yes. And so yeah, I probably agree. The one point I would agree with this panel is that when it goes to the ballot and you have outside interests, you have business interests, fund the campaign. And when it's a yes or no, it is very difficult in this environment for the no's to prevail because it's just yes or no, and it's a lot of um, ads on the yes side. And that will be very difficult if you want to talk about that. But thank you. Yeah, we, I, I will want to get to that, but I, I want to pick up on what you said about decriminalization. Why was that not really on the table? I mean, you know, uh, Rice, Senator Rice, you know, made a major campaign for decriminalization, um, and I have spoken to many people that don't understand why that it wasn't central to the to the to the efforts by this. No, I love I love Senator Rice. If, if my father was alive, he would be saying exactly the same thing <laughs> Senator Rice is saying. So I defend him. But the reason why decriminalization wasn't a good idea for a lot of people is because we didn't want to create more of a robust black market, right? The idea of marijuana being a gateway drug. The argument was that the reason why people are saying that is because not that marijuana itself is the gateway drug, the drug dealer is the gateway, right? So if the only way you can get marijuana is on the street, that guy can also get you cocaine, he can also get you heroin, and he can also get you anything else you want. So we wanted to make it legal so that we can regulate it, so we can kind of control 
how it gets out. So that's why the, the, the decriminalization didn't go anywhere. I mean, it's an interesting answer. I've studied drug markets for 25 years. Um, the, the Most people get marijuana for free from friends or family. They don't get it from the shady, you know, remember that D.A.R.E. commercial from 30 years ago with the guy with the, uh, with the trench coat, like, hey kids, wanna get high? You remember that that thing? And they have like, they had like every, I mean, it was amazing what they had in there that they could hold. It's like the pills and the cocaine and the heroin and then here was the marijuana and the LSD. And the, that is not, maybe that was reality then. No, no offense to those people who put that commercial together. That is not the reality now. That is not the way drug markets work. And so this idea that, well, we don't want decriminalization because that drug dealer is gonna offer and make someone buy something other than marijuana I mean, maybe that's happened and it could happen in some cases, but as a public policy, as something that is happening regularly, that's just not how drug markets work. I think, honestly, proponents of decriminalization, um, it was very, uh, proponents of legalization, it was very clear why they wanted to legalize marijuana. It wasn't about social justice. Uh, it was about uh, donors, it was about money, uh, business interests, and because if it was about social justice, you would at least do what New York did an hour ago, and you would try and you would say, all right, let's at the very least stop the bleeding. If you think the bleeding is happening, you think the, the, the records are getting on there, you think the arrests are happening, you would at least stop the bleeding and say, all right, you know what, we're going to come back, and don't worry, they will in New York too, we're going to come back with legalization, but we're going to stop the bleeding, we're going to agree with you all, find some common ground, and pass the decriminalization out. I think the reason they didn't is because it takes, a, it takes the wind out of the sails of the legalization argument for a lot of people. Because the reason why a lot of people, are, whether they're legislators or the public, support legalization, as I said earlier, is because they actually support the decriminalization. And once you, if you decriminalized, you were going to take that big argument away. Now they didn't decriminalize, all right? Uh, with that logic, more people are being arrested, 600 a, a day. Uh, and, and now that they didn't, you're able to go to a ballot campaign in 2020 and say, look at all of these social injustices that are happening as a result of our marijuana laws. We need to legalize marijuana now. So it might have been a shrewd political move, and uh, uh, you know, uh, yeah, your, your former boss is very shrewd politically, but I think, uh, which is a compliment, but I think <laughs> that um, it did us a social injustice. And if we really cared about social justice, you would have swallowed it the way they, New York lawmakers did. They did a true decriminalization. It wasn't, I think, a perfect bill at all. I had problems with it, but I supported it at the end, and it, it got us over the, the line. So I, I just have a question, because I'm not familiar with New York's law. Sure. Was there, in the debate on this bill, was there any talk about um, the time frame in which you know the state is going to allow this decriminalization to kind of run its course and see you know what the effects are and then when we're going to go back and revisit because I'm yeah, it's a great question. I think everything was very last minute. I mean, if we know Albany, it, um, I mean, they were working and literally until an hour ago. They extended their session two days. It's a different dynamic than Trenton. Uh, I think people talked about that, and I think that's a lot. I think that's a very sensible thing to do. Like, okay, let's see what happens in the next couple of years. Let's see if this actually reduces it. Now, it's going to be interesting to see that because even in Colorado, where they've obviously fully legalized and commercialized and billboards and gummy bears and everything that, you know, waxes and no THC limits and a thousand lobbyists in Denver. Even with all of that, um, you have increases of arrests. You have increased arrests for um, African-American and Hispanic youth, for adults, African-American and Hispanic adults. When you look at per population, you have an increase of an annual arrest rate there. So even legalization didn't do that. It'll be interesting to see what decriminalization does. It may take some time. 
But I wish I could say that Liz Kruger, the senator of Manhattan, who is the main sponsor of legalization in New York, I wish I could say she was that contemplative and said, yes, we're going to wait three years and see what happens. No, they've said, like, you know, in three months, we're going to bring us back to special session and pass legalization. Um, but they don't have the votes. The Democratic caucus, just like in New Jersey, is split, and um, they, they, I don't think they have the votes to do it. So I think it's also important to, to talk about what decriminalization actually is. New York City has decriminalized cannabis, um, and they still see a, a disproportionate number of arrests. They still see a disproportionate number of fines. Decriminalization just means that you start with a ticket instead of start with an arrest. And so the folks that are getting those tickets based on minor possession, they get one ticket, they get two tickets, they get three tickets, and it escalates. If they're not paying those tickets, they end up in jail. The new law is different. The new law is different, so that, that's not going to, what was just passed an hour ago, that, that's not the case. Reasonable people are going to be able to disagree, but I, I've read the bill and, and my interpretation does not see that being a, a major change. And the, con the conversations here in New Jersey about decriminalization have really focused in on the social justice aspects and that they would not be achieved through decriminalization because there still would be that opportunity for escalation and there would be a push towards um, the only place to get cannabis would be through the illegal market. So then there would be increased pressure on police to identify people that are distributing cannabis illegally and purchasing cannabis illegally. Um, so I think it's important, again, to note that decriminalization just doesn't mean it's okay and you can possess what you have and nobody's going to ask questions about where it came from. Look, and, and if you look at the black market in Colorado now, obviously the underground market is thriving. So you have more people using, therefore more people using on the road, therefore more people using in public. Those are all illegal. You can't drive and you can't use in public. Alcohol is the number one reason for arrest. I don't know if you all knew this. There are way more people arrested for alcohol than all drugs combined in our country and in our state. Be why? Because it's more prevalent and more people drink and drive than they you know, use cocaine and drive. More people use in public, more people you sell to minors. Those are all offenses that people are still being arrested for. And in Colorado, the black market is thriving because the drug dealers you know, drug dealers don't be, go to dental school when you legalize marijuana. You know, it's not like, oh, we're, we're done. <laughs> you know, they undercut the legal price. And I will admit, and I think we can all agree with, with this, and all public policies have pros and cons. I mean, no one is, I don't think anyone here is saying that their preferred policy, and I'm, again, I'm, I'm, I think I'm outvoted here three to one, I think. Um, no one is saying that it's, per I don't think you're even saying it's perfect, and I'm, I'm certainly not saying that my preferred is perfect, it's pros and cons. I happen, and, and reasonable people can disagree, and that's good. I happen to think that creating Big Tobacco 2.0 is worse than having a small black market, which we would have, because there will always be people who want to use drugs, I, I agree. There will always be people who want to use marijuana. 50% of Americans have tried it, thank God only 10% use regularly. Most people actually try it, they actually don't like it, that's kind of the big secret of the whole thing. Um, is that most people actually don't enjoy what marijuana does to them, that's why they don't keep using it. Some people love it and they keep using it a lot. Uh, but the reality is I would prefer not having Philip Morris for pot versus the black market. And reasonable people can disagree. Um, I think you need to pick up my, my question here. Oh, I, well, this is interesting that we, why, and I want to ask, well, the whole panel, but why couldn't it pass? And why didn't it pass in, in uh, New York? I mean, what, uh, Democrats were in control of both states, and yes, you say that there are differences, but really when you talk to a lot of these people, it's, 
I don't know how much of it is philosophical. Well, some people, like uh, Senator Rice, it's clearly something he really believes in. But there are others, you know, I'm not so sure. So why doesn't it pass? Well, I guess I'm the best qualified to answer that question because I was in the room arguing with everybody. We <laughs> so it's math, right? There's 40 senators, and you got to get 21 to say yes. And they were all over the place. Even the yeses, people had different reasons why they said yes. Part of the problem, I, I think, and this is just my opinion, is that the bill got too big. It got so comprehensive that there were things in the bill that you were darned if you do, darned if you don't. The most public thing that was talked about was the expungement of third degree distribution. Everyone was talking about that. You, five pounds is a lot. Meanwhile, we're saying a micro license is a thousand pounds a month. But for some reason, for some reason, people are saying five pounds is so much marijuana. I'm like, what are you talking about? So third degree distribution is distribution of one ounce to five pounds. So if we were gonna, you had a choice. You could either not allow expungements over one ounce, or you had to go all the way to the five pounds. So we're in a situation where you're gonna lose votes whether you add it or take it out. So, and there were a couple of things in there. I, as the bill started getting bigger, I was actually kind of making notes. I'm like, this is a darned if you do, darned if you don't situation. This is gonna collapse on itself if we continue. The, another thing was the consumption areas. Right, you had senators right. from urban areas and they said, well, the people that live in federal housing or people live in these apartment complexes, they're not gonna be able to participate in the market because the landlord says no, so they have to have a place where they can go. And then you had other people that are like, wait a minute, we want cigar bars out of the illegal, we don't want smoking. So now I'm like, well, if I put it in, I lose this guy, if I take it out, I lose this person. And we just got into this situation where I was at 19, was at 20, was at 18, change this, I'm at 17, and we just couldn't get 21 people to agree. Now, being in politics for four years, this is one thing I will tell you that is the absolute truth. If things go right, everyone's lining up to say it was because of me, right? <laughs> Everyone wants to take the credit. When things go south, everyone's pointing the fingers at, Murphy didn't get enough votes, Sweeney didn't get enough votes. I will tell you, after being there, Everyone did the best they could. Steve Sweeney worked as hard on that bill, and he will tell you he's worked as hard on that bill as he has on any bill since he's been a legislator. Phil Murphy did what he could. Tom Coughlin did what he could. We just couldn't get to 21. Um, so I have had the opportunity to work with um, some legislators in Illinois, and they were the first state to pass uh, comprehensive cannabis reform through the legislature. And I think that one of the very important differences was how collaborative the leadership was. Um, there were four women that really led the effort. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna take one for the girls here and say that that was a, really was an, a very important part because the way that they approached this was they met with stakeholders across the board for over a year and a half. And they talked with them, and they identified what the key issues were. And when it made it in the bill, they explained to the people that didn't want it why it made it into the bill and what they were getting out of the situation. And when something didn't make it into the bill, then they explained it to that stakeholder, and they made a commitment to come back and revisit it. The day that they passed the bill, they announced that there would be a trailer bill. They knew from the moment they passed that legislation that it was going to need continuous improvement and they were transparent about that. And that is not a conversation that we saw in New Jersey. What we saw was perfection getting in the way of progress 
And um, we saw leaders that were very set in their ways and deciding what they wanted. And the public process was not as open as it was in Illinois, where we saw a successful passage. I think what you also saw there was compromise. Yes. And so I think that, you know, Fukan is correct. You know, you had this huge, uh, you know, omnibus bill. And at some point, everyone was trying to excise the pieces out of the bill that, of course, they were so very much so behind. And it got in the way of the compromise uh, because there is, there is a common goal. I mean, I guess we could also disagree about that. Um, but there is a common goal there. And, you know, when you, I don't think you're going to get, you know, I'm going back to a, a previous point about criminal justice reform. I don't think that you're going to get anybody to disagree that we need wholesale criminal justice reform. You know, Fuquan and I are both past presidents of the Garden State Bar Association, and so that's the, the Black Bar Association for New Jersey. And so we know that criminal justice reform is going to begin with making some individual steps. And so whether that is decriminalization to finding out, you know, why the individuals are brought into the criminal justice system, or whether it's talking about the economics of it, whether it's talking about the diversity on the bench, there needs to be a wholesale conversation around it. And I think those larger scale conversations, maybe it's because you didn't have enough public um, uh, comment and opinion, um, were lost. And I think that if you can get more of that input, um, if you can get more individuals who were affected, more testimony, then you could really get to the heart of why we all have a common goal here and how it could be achieved um, through something uh, wholesale as legalization. A lot was said there. I, I, um, I'm not going to sit here. It'd be very easy to take credit and just say, well, we were the one group that did this and we put our small resources in it and we, we won this. There's a lot of reasons why I think it didn't work out. Um, you know, I think the Illinois contrast is interesting. You know, when you have a governor like J.B. Pritzker, uh, who has about $41 billion of um, programs that he can give out to state legislators, uh, and you have a governor so, com you know, the governor's, as you know, the governor's cousin is the chair of the marijuana policy project, I think still is, the lar and the largest marijuana industry group in the country. When you have the governor's cousin and the governor's family so invested in the marijuana business, and you have someone like JB, uh, who's a billionaire himself, uh, you know, with literally $41 billion to give out in spending, um, you can change a lot of votes. And we actually were up in, in one house in Illinois, and it was clear that that wasn't going to hold because when the governor is calling each of those on the fence legislators and saying, come to my office, but you know, you're voting in an hour, come, come to my office right now and promising the world, unfortunately, politics gets in the way and, and Illinois, um, that it has a, bit, a little bit of a history of that. Uh, and I think that's what a lot of it is what happened there. We also are a small nonprofit and we have six or seven staff. We're funded by people who have um, you know, addiction problems or have had addiction problems in their family. We're not, we don't have an industry behind us to, uh, we get no funding from pharma or tobacco, obviously, alcohol, any corporations. So we don't have investors. Uh, and on the pro side, I think many of you, I mean, you, you, you invest in a state to get your investment back. So in other words, you invest in legalization and the advocacy so that if it passes, you will reap the benefits of that. And that's smart. I would do that too if I was in the marijuana business because that's the only way you're going to make money is if the law changes. We don't have that. Like when we passed decriminalization an hour ago, I couldn't call someone who and said, your investment paid off. Now you're going to be paid a lot of money. Will you give me some of that? There, no, we're not getting money from passing decriminalization. So we're not able to do that in every state. And we had to focus resources, New Jersey, New York, uh, a little bit more. Illinois was going to be very hard. And I think at the end of the day, when we were able to have three or 400 
um, people per swing district in New Jersey flood the phones of these uh, senators, it was going to be very hard for a lot of these senators to change. I actually think, um, and who knows, but my hunch is that um, the reporting, uh, and there's been some great reporting in New Jersey, and they're working hard like Peyton and other folks, but the reporting about how close they were, one vote short, two vote shorts, our vote counts looked very different from talking with these legislators one-on-one -on -one and having people in their district see them at the post office, see them at the store, and put them on the spot about their vote. Our vote count did not look as close as 1920, as some people say. Um, okay, well, I've, I've, got, I've got a couple of questions about the, the New York, and we should bring this up now. Um, and I've got a, a question here from you, uh, for you, Kevin. Um, well, first of all, how different were the uh, New York and New Jersey bills, both which failed, but um, were they similar? And did they similarly address um, the equity split and the social justice reform and that kind of thing? I think they, they tried. I think they were actually very similar. Others will say, well, no, there was this difference in that. I mean, I think generally they were they were similar without getting in too much into the details. Um, so I think they both tried to do that. Again, there was a fundamental disagreement about, you know, whether you give a kid from Queens a micro license and then you think he's going to be able to compete with Philip Morris, there's a fundamental disagreement about whether that's going to hold and be sustainable. Um, so. Uh, okay. Um, we should come back to the Phyllis Morris question, but uh, before we move on too much, I wanted uh, to read this question, which was, and it was specifically for you, Kevin. Do you believe cannabis has any medicinal benefit regardless of your feeling uh, on legalization? And then I have a follow-up. How long do we have? No, no, yeah, no, I, not too long. Yes I, or and, no? And I, and well, yes, of course it has medicinal. Okay. Uh, just like opium does, uh, just like, uh, uh, you know, a coca also does as well. Um, there are, marijuana is a complex plant. Well, coca does. I mean, it, it's cocaine is in, in some preparation of sodium hydrochloride is used in some very specific surgeries. I mean, that's the reality of it. Opium it gives us the most successful painkiller in mankind's history with morphine. Marijuana has hundreds and hundreds of components in it. It's a very complex plant. It's more complex than opium. That's good news because that means that there's a lot of it that we don't know that it's very interesting. We absolutely need to do more research. We have called for a new schedule for marijuana that we would call 1R, um, which would allow that research to go on in a better way. There is a lot of research. It's a bit of a misnomer that there's no research because it's Schedule 1. Uh, we research heroin every day. There's, I mean, heroin is Schedule 1, LSD is Schedule 1. There's a ton of research going on with those two drugs. Um, so just because it's Schedule 1 doesn't mean you can't do research, but it means the research is harder to do. And we have called for doing more research. I am puzzled as to why we have to vote on medicine. If I can just take us back to the last panel, I think that's odd. I don't think that people in this room, unless you are um, working in, you know, unless you're like a biochemist, can vote on what, like, what you think about medicine is is a little strange to me. When we have the FDA, that's why we don't have snake oil anymore. That's why we had the Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act from 110 years ago. There's a reason why we have that, and I worry about medical marijuana in that industry. Um, making every claim in the world. I mean, CBD, which I think has a lot of promise and does, beyond promise, it shows efficacy for multiple things, but there's a lot we don't know about it, and it sort of reminds me of like aloe vera in 1986. Like, it's being promised for everything. And I think we have to be a little careful. It's very odd to me that we have places selling things 
even if a state is overseeing them like New Jersey, that the FDA and the FDA approved laboratories that actually see what's in these things are not allowed to touch. It's just a very strange system. And I get if you have cancer and six months to live, I get if your kid has 100 seizures a day and you could care less about what the FDA says. I have family members that have the same thing. Let me be on record. I get that if you have some debilitating illness that you can't get out of bed, we can make carve-outs for those kinds of things, for those specific ailments. And I don't think anybody, I've never met one chief of police, let alone neighborhood person, anyone who would want to get in the way of that person accessing that if there was a safe way to do that. But that is very different than allowing it for opioid use disorder, which I think is a big mistake, allowing it for certain mental illnesses, which when we look at the research, I think is a big mistake, offering it for an 18-year-old who has a backache, the, the, th those kinds of things don't pass the giggle test in my mind. But again, for those with debilitating for certain things, I think we would agree, sure, I, I don't care if you have six months to live and you want to smoke a crack pipe. Like, I, if that makes you feel better and helps you in your last six months, I mean, I, go for it. Uh, it doesn't, the FDA doesn't have to tell you that. But if we're talking about medicine as a whole, it's odd to me that we vote and have dispensaries, which is a word that we used in the 1800s, dispensary, before we had, but that's very strange, versus an actual mechanism to ensure safety and efficacy. Bottom line, marijuana has medicinal purposes. I don't think you have to smoke it, though, to get those medicinal properties. It's a very complex plant. We need more research, and it should be allowed for certain things, period. Okay, I'd like to move on to the um, expungement question. Um, this is a very complicated question uh, in that it's got a lot of layers to it. But that right now, people want, you know, the legislature and the governor very much want to implement expungement of, of marijuana law. It's complex, and, and they, uh, they're talking about doing it even this year, even while it's still, which I find is odd, but even though it's still illegal, they're talking about expunging um, the records of people that, um, you know, were convicted of it. So, um, where are, well, my question is, where are we with this? Um, are we going to be able to uh, enact an, an, an expungement law um, before uh, we legalize, which is clearly going to, you know, be, uh, it seems to me, despite Kelly's optimism, I think it's clearly going to be at least a year or two. Um, so how do you... Uh, I would say the answer to that is, is a clear yes. Like there, there was disagreement in the Democratic caucus about the legalization of marijuana. You had the Ron Rice's of the world, you had Shirley Turner's of the world. But when it comes to the expungement, you didn't have that much disagreement. I think we could pass the expungement legislation with all Democratic votes there. They, there won't be more than two or three of them. That'll but how can you do it when it's still, how can you expunge the records of people convicted of what is still illegal today? You know, I mean, they could go and, you know, get convicted tomorrow, uh, you know, so, uh, how does well, that work? Is, this is the way the bill looked the last time I saw it, right? So there's generally a waiting period. Like a lot of these things you can get expunged now. You don't have to change that. You just have to wait five years. So what they're doing is they're making it easier, they're making it cheaper, and they're broadening the amount of people that can get it done, right? So the way the bill is, the last time I saw it, if you have a past conviction for possession or distribution up to one ounce, you can immediately get it expunged. Now, if you violate one of these laws after the bill's passed, now you have to wait 18 months 
not the five years currently, but you have to wait 18 months. If you get convicted after the bill is signed of selling between that one ounce and five pounds, that third degree thing that caused me headaches and sleepless nights, you have to wait three years instead of five. So we are reducing the waiting period. We are extending the number of people that can get it. We get making the process easier as well. And there's also something that I actually think is more impactful that's not being talked about in this uh, Sandra Cunningham bill. She's calling it the clean slate for 10 years. So if you're 10 years out of trouble, you can get anything that is currently expungible expunged. Not just marijuana, but anything that's currently expungible. And I think that'll have more of an impact than just a marijuana related. Is, is, is the process of expungement, I mean, a lot of people have said to me that um, part of the problem is that the, the state and municipalities <clears throat> you know, really don't have the capacity to handle all this. Um, you know, I mean, it's just, just you know, our technology, our, our fantastic technology and uh, number of people employed just can't, just can't I think do it. They, I think they need to figure it out. Like, one of the things that's going to be a problem, because we didn't pass the adult use bill and we're not going to get this tax money and the tax money that we're supposed to get for that was partially going to pay for the e-filing system and pay for all the changes. So I don't know what we're going to do about that gap and where the money's going to come from. Maybe it'll fight about the millionaire's tax, another reason to fight about the millionaire's tax. But <laughs> we're going to... The, the bill makes expungements a lot easier. It's like you fill out an application for free. In 30 days, the, the superior court will tell the law enforcement, and then they have 30 days to tell the court not to do it. And if they don't, it's done. Okay. So it's a lot simpler. I'm sorry, Kevin. Yeah, no, unfortunately, I have to step out because of, of an obligation in a few minutes. I'll just say something and then pass it, pass it along. Um, for, on the expungement thing, I think, you know, I've heard this argument that, uh, not, not today, but before that, well, we just can't figure out how to do it because it's very hard to do. Uh, I, you know, if I dream about going to Hawaii tomorrow, Facebook knows that, and I have an ad tomorrow on my Facebook feed. Like, we have figured out to do very complicated things, uh, whether it's Google or Facebook, social media. So we know how to do expungement. It, it's not like, well, the only way to expunge is if we then legalize. No, again, that's a, that's a red herring argument um, that we heard a lot, that there's just no way to do it, and it's going to be very hard. There are a lot of ways to do it, and I think those bills we talked about, Clean Slate and others, are worth looking at. Just one final thing before I have to go. I, I, I would um, really urge everybody here in the audience that, uh, who again, I probably doesn't agree with me, and that's fine, and that's good. It makes us smarter and better people to be around people who we disagree with. Uh, to just keep in mind the fact that marijuana addiction is real, that marijuana use disorder is real, that marijuana treatment, not for everyone, the vast majority of people, and I'll say this on the record, the vast majority of people who try marijuana will not have a problem with it. You heard me say that. But there are, there is a certain proportion of people and a growing proportion because of the potency of today's marijuana where this is a big problem. And when the fact that we now have more youth in New Jersey in treatment for marijuana than all drugs combined, not because a judge sent them there, but because their parents sent them there because they were dropping out of school and their lives have changed, there is a reason why the American Academy of Pediatrics, both the New Jersey chapter and the national chapter, was against this bill for legalization. We didn't mention that. There's a reason why the medical society was against legal is against legalization. We didn't mention that before because for some people, not everybody, 
this can have serious health consequences. And for those in the industry, who are, I think are a lot of people here in this, in this room who are looking at the green rush and all those things, and I, by the way, I hope you got in on it a couple of years ago because the big guys are buying everything up. If you did get in it a couple of years ago and you are gonna be a member of this industry, please understand, unlike your compatriots in the alcohol, pharma, and tobacco industries, that some people, not everybody, can have a real problem with this extreme THC. And if you don't care about it because of your heart, care about it because of your wallet. Because if you think that the lawsuits for tobacco were big, and you think that the lawsuits from pharma were big, I promise you in 10, 20 years, and you're already seeing a little bit of this in Colorado, we're gonna start to see the product liability issues because of the claims being made, wild claims unfounded by science about marijuana. So I just, I wanna be that even though you may not like me and you may not like what I said, I want to just give you that perspective um, to take when you continue with your business. So good luck with the rest of the day. I'm sorry because of the emergency, I, I, as I told you earlier, yeah. but I have to head out. I, I appreciate the panel and I appreciate being invited. Thank you. Fruquan, I know you were speaking just a minute ago about the, um, uh, how the, it would actually work procedurally with expunging while it, it's still illegal. So did that speak at all to the vacating of uh, sentences? That I didn't see, I'm not sure, okay. no, I don't, I don't believe so. Gotcha. So it's like dismissal of pending charges and then there was a expungement if you had it in the past and in the future, shorter waiting period. But I don't think it talked about vacation. Only because I thought that that was just a stalwart of you know, the decriminalization piece. I mean, right. you know, going back, if you're talking about achieving social justice, I mean, going back and really righting past right. wrongs. So I just didn't know if at all there was any thought even to it. Was it something that just didn't make it into? I had left by that You point. were gone back. I just saw it. The <laughs> bus was already off the cliff. <laughs> okay, let's, uh, maybe we can move on to the, to the subject of what does <clears throat> a ballot initiative entail and how do you anticipate that, um, going. I mean, uh, most states in this country have, that have legalized marijuana have done it through ballot initiatives. I, I think it's probably a lot easier because, as Kevin said, you're asking yes and no questions. Um, they're choosing a, a year which they expect many Democrats to come out. And as somebody said to me today, they'll even bring more, some people that might not have voted might, might come out and vote for this and then we'll probably vote Democrats. So yes, Steve Sweeney is a pretty smart guy. Um, but, but what's gonna be involved in this ballot initiative? So I'll, I'll, t I'll take this one first. Um, because I actually had the privilege of explaining to several elected officials here in New Jersey what the process was. Um, New Jersey does not generally, does not actually have a mechanism for, um, for a ballot initiative. Um, it's a state constitutional amendment, which is incredibly difficult um, and burdensome for voters to add something to the state constitution. Um, it's important to note that um, the language would be very broad, um, most likely be incredibly broad, and then the state legislature would actually have to take up and write the enabling legislation that we already have written that they could be negotiating this summer um, and move forward. Um, once, it, you know, if the ballot initiative passed, um, or if the constitutional amendment, which is what you would have in New Jersey, passed, um, it would take three-fifths majority to make any changes to the ballot language. Um, so whatever the, the people voted on, three-fifths of the legislature would have to vote to change it. And then it would have to go back to the voters 
for a direct vote. If they can't get three-fifths majority in one legislative session, they can get a simple majority in two consecutive legislative sessions, and then it goes to the public for a vote. So just keep in mind here, it's very difficult to get a supermajority. So realistically speaking, you're going to have two legislative sessions, so that's two years, and then you have a ballot initiative that has to go to the people that you're adding at least nine months, likely another year, before you get certified voting results. This is an industry that moves incredibly fast. Again, I go back to Illinois, where the day that they passed the bill, they said a trailer was coming because they learned things the day of the bill that informed them that they wanted to make cleanup language. So the idea that we would be putting ourselves in a situation where it could take two to three plus years to course correct is, is very dangerous, um, in my opinion, especially when the bulk of the work would still need to be done through the legislature um, to do enactment and then to, um, to build out the program in the rules and regulation phase. So a ballot initiative pushes everything down the road three plus years. Well, I, I don't know what you know that language would look like, and I, I take your word that, of course, it will be extremely broad. I just think that the average citizen is, you know, misinformed about what that um, would entail on the constitutional standpoint from actually having to make an amendment to your constitution. That's a huge, huge deal, um, and so it's not going to be instant. You know, it's not going to be the same as passing a bill. Um, it's not going to be, you know, with a, um, an effective date as of, you know, tomorrow. Um, that is not going to happen that way. So, you know, while this may seem like a consolation prize, <laughs> it, it's one with um, with several delays behind it. And there will be tons of politics involved. I think we spoke very briefly about, you know, when that ballot initiative comes up and, you know, coupling that with a presidential election, coupling that with, you know, certain individuals being on the ballot for a presidential election, very, very strategic. And so, you know, that may just be like a one bite at the apple kind of thing. Um, and even then, you know, as was already mentioned, something that you're going to look, what, four years down the road from after that. It's also, it's important to recognize that in states that have gone through a, through, um, a constitutional amendment process, the campaigns have gotten really dirty, and it's gotten very confusing for voters. Um, just a, a quick example, um, you know, Ohio had very, very high public support for medical um, program, and they went to the ballot, and it was a constitutional amendment that was very prescriptive, um, because that's the way that, that they approached it. They wanted to make sure everything was locked in. And the ads that were running were about specific lines that would be in the state constitution, and some of the most adamant medical marijuana supporters in the state came out against the, against the, the constitutional amendment. It failed miserably, and the, the legislature promptly picked it up and built out their medical program because they understood that the will of the voters, much like New Jersey, was to move forward, but they didn't want to do it through a constitutional amendment. I can give you, you know, a half dozen examples of this, but but um, I'm from Ohio originally, so I like to give the, the Midwestern sensibility argument. Um, I think New Jersey has, New Jersey voters are that much more sensible in that they're already demanding that the legislature move forward and don't bring this to the people. They've already spoken, they've made their voices very clear. So I just wanna co-sign what Kelly said earlier. That the ballot question is gonna be very simple. It's gonna be, are you in favor of freedom or are you in favor of prohibition? And then most people are gonna vote yes because it's gonna be designed for most people to vote yes. And once that's done, we'll dust off this 200-page monstrosity um, that we dealt with 
and then try to pass it. Now, it would be totally different than it was the last time because now a lot of the senators will have cover to vote yes. So that is the reason why when Kevin was here, he said his number was much lower than my number because when they were talking to Kevin, they were like, oh, no, no, and they're talking to me. Like, don't tell anybody, don't make this public. If, Fru, if you get the 20, you can count on me, but don't tell. But that's the reason because they didn't want publicly to say they voted yes before they actually had to right. vote yes. But if you get a ballot initiative and the public says we are behind this, then they can stand up when they get reelected and say, I had no choice. This right. is what the people wanted. My choice wanted. was to make, to make this as, be, as best a uh, law as I could. That's not right. to, not, I, the people wanted the Does law. The people I had, want a, so I had, I to, had to, yeah. Right, so that's, that's the plan. That's the, the <coughs> Sweeney master plan, also, right? To put right. it on the ballot so that our members that were uncomfortable with the reaction of their communities could vote yes comfortably. I also, I think that's pretty amusing that you said, because I thought somebody would say that earlier when it failed. It seemed to me that, um, and this is why most places did not go through legislation, it's much easier to not vote on something like this to, than to face people that every, uh, many people are going to, many of the, their districts, there are going to be people in there that um, are not supportive of, of, of marijuana laws, and they'd have to answer to that. So I think it's, it's, it's a fallacy to say that people um, lose elections because they would support cannabis. Um, I'm not saying they would. I'm just saying they think that, that Correct. They could. And, and one of the things that we, you know, that I think is important for legislators to understand is that most people are indifferently supportive of cannabis. The people in this room may be very supportive of cannabis reform. Um, there are a few people in this room that are very adamantly opposed to cannabis reform, but generally speaking, people are indifferently supportive. And the people that are super, super excited about cannabis reform, cannabis voters, that's the only thing that they're motivated. So the net gain there is those voters. The number of people that are passionately um, opposed to cannabis reform have a lot of issues that they're passionate about. And so it's not necessarily a make or break uh, decision. It's single issue voters in cannabis are very rare. And to look at the whole picture is very important. Um, I think it's really unfortunate when um, public opinion is growing and towards that um, indifferently supportive um, being the vast, vast majority. Um, that legislators would, would desire that kind of coverage. Um, in three years, the average person at the grocery store that you ask is going, to be, is going to be supportive. They have the information. Right now, the average person at the grocery store is supportive. So um, I, I wish that they would take that into consideration and, um, and help move New Jersey forward and give people what they need. I also think we're surmising, of course, you know, on what ballot initiative language would, would look like. but. We lose all the intricacies. I think you know, for Quan was talking about, you know, how complicated the bill was. I mean, you know, all the different provisions in there. But then you lose all those other special pieces when you get to talking about, you know, like the the number of pounds, or you lose all those intricacies talking about the expungements and how they're going to be rolled out and actually how you're going to deal with them. You lose that when you get to a ballot. You do go to a yes or no. You know, click this button or click that button, and you don't really get other um, pieces of the marijuana decriminalization that are very, very much so methodical and needed for the social justice benefits. I, th I think the idea, Lloyd, is that once the public says yes, then you still do the legislation, right? So then you get to put all this stuff, like the same thing we did with the bail reform. Once people said, yeah, we want to reform bail, then they still have to do it through the legislature. They have to do the work. 
Um, Kelly, I would also say, I mean, not to, but you, you talked about the constitutional amendment, and correct me if I'm wrong, we have constitutional amendments on the, on the ballot most years. And, um, and, and, and historically speaking, when New Jersey has a constitutional question on the ballot, historically they fail because they are really? complicated. The vast majority, it's very, very difficult to pass a constitutional amendment here. Is that true? I think, I think yeah. I mean, at one point we were going to do six different amendments, right? Dif but they, they, like she said, they get complicated as you're trying to explain how you're going to tax this and how you're going to do that. I don't think this is one of those issues. This, this is going to be simple. It's going to be yes or no. And like Kelly said, most people are quietly in support of it. I don't think that there is any fear that it won't pass overwhelmingly 70%. And I had members that was calling for that from the beginning. Let's just put it on the ballot. Let's put, right. just put it on the ballot because right. no one is in fear that it's going to fail or that anyone would not understand, would you like to legalize marijuana or not? Right. Um, I do have a question here, and I'm going to ask you. Um, the, uh, the question is, is there really, there's been mention of a possibility of uh, um, passing this in the lame duck session this fall. Is that likely? Well, if Kelly has her way, probably. No. I will say, working in the legislature, I've met with Kelly, I don't know how many times, and she has advocated, and she has fixed things that we had wrong, she had explained. So it's possible. Do I think it's likely? I don't think it's likely. I don't think it's likely. I don't think it's likely either. I think that what we have to see, again, I am, I am the Pollyanna of pot in New Jersey. And that is my role. And I am also, I, what we haven't seen is an uprising, a swell of support from, from the public. And, um, and I think that if we saw that, then the likelihood of passing during lame duck would be much higher. Um, possible and likely are very different. Okay. It is absolutely possible, and it would be much more likely if people picked up the phone and called their representatives and demanded it. Let me say something about it. I think she's absolutely right. There, there wasn't a cry for legalization. Right. The only voices you heard was opposition. Mm -hmm. And everyone that was in favor of it, it was mostly silent. The only thing that you heard really was the social justice piece. So we managed... To, to get part of the way there, almost to the finish line, by convincing the public that the reason we're trying to do a multi-billion dollar drug distribution network is because some black kids got marijuana on their record, right? And that got us that far. But we couldn't get the rest of the distance because we didn't get the so, phone call saying, you so, should do it. So the senators, they listen to the, the parent that say no. Right? So it sounds to me that you think that the social justice aspect of this is a bit of a ruse. No, well. I mean, I think it's, oh, it's right. a part of it, but it was the only part of it that okay. was getting positive movement and positive press. What was missing was the reason to make it legal. Why? Right? Why and that's why you need, that's why people, well, why not decriminalize it? So that's why that argument came up. Well, if your, your, your problem is the social justice, then why not just make it legal, make it decriminalized. Why, why can't we get that public support? I mean, is it just because the social justice piece, of course, speaks more to you know, the hearts of people and that you, know, you're, you, you kind of lead with your best argument? Or is it because these people are just ashamed to talk about how much money they're gonna make? I think that's the thing, right? Okay. I think people was looking at that as a bad thing. Oh, this, this is bad because people are gonna make money. Oh, the only reason you're doing it is because you wanna get taxes. Like, 
But the industry, the marijuana industry, in my opinion, didn't do its part to promote why. And do you think that would change for the ballot initiative? I hope so. I've seen some weed map things on the turnpikes. So hopefully I'll see more <laughs> well, of that. Well, Kelly, will we see more? I mean, that is one thing that with a, it's something on the ballot, you do have, you know, we didn't see advertisement on television or even cable TV, or we didn't see um, ex explainers or answer questions. I mean, really it was a internal discussion and the press, was, of course, was very interested in it. And so we, you know, we wrote about the internal discussion, but there was not a public. So, so Weed Maps has actually been engaged in New Jersey in a public education campaign for about 18 months. Um, we have billboards, we have an online community, um, we have, um, you know, people can sign up for to do action alerts to send emails to their elected representatives. We give them the information and updates on the on bill progress, um, but we're just one organization. Um, you know, the labor movement has been, um, is, is very well represented in the bill, um, but they haven't been terribly vocal um, outside of the last probably couple of weeks or months. Um, and I think that they're a trusted resource and I would, I would hope that we would see um, them be a little bit more vocal here in New Jersey because they, we're talking about job creation, um, living wage jobs um, with a, a full career path from entry level to, uh, to CEO possibilities here. Um, which is a is a totally new and exciting perspective. Um, when it comes to a, when it comes to a campaign, you know I can't comment on whether um, Weed Maps would be, um, you know, in any kind of a leadership position or um, educational position as far as as the language or as far as um, you know a public campaign. But I, I think, you know, we're still in the in a position where we would like to see this go through the legislature so that when the opportunity for course correction ar arises, we can make those those adjustments quickly and be reflective of the needs of consumers and the industry. I think more time and attention still also needs to be given to those mom and pops. You know, you talked about the small hardware store, you know, kind of examples. Well, because, you know, you, you hear a lot about, you know, this is just going to create the big business and create the Philip Morrises, you know, of the, of the world are going to win here. But, you know, just talking about the businesses that would touch the plant is one thing, but all of the ancillary services as well that are going to be able to, you know, spark all of those, the, the job growth and creation. Um, and, you know, you can get entrepreneurial spirit out there. You can get small businesses off the ground. You know, you really do have an entirely new economy that is spawned uh, from this. And so I do think that maybe that is a way to touch the, you know, the hearts of the citizens and the voters. If you go to, you know, the appeal of the small businesses and, you know, you too can, you know, create um, something through an entrepreneurial endeavor by legalizing marijuana. Uh, it, it seems to me, and I, we don't want to, I maybe, I'm belaboring this point, but it seems to me that there was so there was so little public education, and the bill came through with its at the very end that even state senators didn't know what they were, were going to be voting on and weren't educated in a lot of things. So it was it's just easier to say no. Yeah, there were no consequences to saying no. Right. There was only only consequences to saying yes. So if you're on the fence, why would you just right? So uh, to me, you know, that was the piece that I think everybody, uh, uh, you know, the public, well, the public was the least of it. I mean, you know, the, the legislators didn't even, weren't even educated in, you know. Uh, again, I had the privilege of, of working with a lot of, of the elected officials here, and you're right, it's, it's an incredibly long, very detailed, comprehensive bill, 
and there were changes that were being made at the very last minute, and so it was difficult to get everybody the information that they needed. I think the staff did an incredible job of getting briefing documents out, but quite frankly, even even the even the um, the final hearing there. People didn't have copies of the amendments. It was unbelievable. Were, it really was. There were unbelievable. not copies of the amendments <laughs> available on the amendments that you had to be testifying on the amendments to be germane to participate in the process. It was. I mean, the press didn't have. They they, they voted on this without having it. They kept saying, "Well, we're printing it now," and I think um, you know, like four hours after the um, vote, the press finally got a, a, a copy of the bill. And you know, the senators you know, didn't get it either, that you did, know? Well, the senators did get like a bullet point thing of like <laughs> yeah. 22 or three pages that I put together in the last <laughs> one. These are the amendments, but it, it did move quickly and it was so big and with so many different changes and iterations and great ideas. People had great ideas, but maybe too, maybe, <laughs> one maybe too many. Too many maybe ideas. too many ideas. <laughs> okay, so now we have um, Kelly aside, we have a year and a half or two years um, before this will be determined, or at least until it become law. Um, are there things that we should be doing, or I shouldn't say we, the, um, the uh, cannabis industry, the supporters of this should be doing now to prepare for that? And are there things we can do now to prepare for that? Uh, so I, I think, again, you know, I, I don't wanna, I don't wanna beat the drum too loud, but, Right now, it's it's telling your legislators not to give up, um, and that they still have the opportunity to pick this up. The second part of it is when um, when it's determined, kind of who is going to be leading the effort, whether it's coming from the from the governor's office, whether it's coming from the legislature, um, in in how the ballot language is being written. I think it's it's going to be incredibly important for people in the industry to participate in that process and advocate for the level of detail that um, that you desire. Um, whether it's very broad or very prescriptive. Um, I think, realistically speaking, it will be very broad. Um, and during that process, develop relationships with your legislators, um, continue those relationships so that they understand what is necessary to include in the bill to be able, so that your business will be able to, to participate, but also so that as many businesses as possible will be able to participate. Um, because we don't want to go into a, a situation where, um, you know, very narrow um, number of people that can participate, very very high barriers to entry. Um, so I, I think that from an advocacy standpoint, all of that is in play. Um, and identifying, you know, from a business perspective, identifying your investors, making sure that you have a solid business plan that can be adaptable um, when the licensing um, process comes up. Kind of sometimes the first in line um, are the first to be read, and that's important to remember. Consulting a lawyer. You got to bring the personal plug. Right, 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 right. right. <laughs> but of course, continuing the education. Um, yeah. I don't think that you know you want to go into this a second time. You know, having those exact same issues with everyone being misinformed. You know, not actually knowing enough about. Um, what the benefits uh, uh, would be. I know that, um, at least of course on the social justice side, which is where I focus a lot, um, the ACLU did a tremendous job, uh, both through their, their like emails that they blast out, as well as through their website, um, with uh, actually breaking down the bill um, so that you know the average person can understand what is detailed in there. Um, more outfits like that, 
uh, need to come forward and make sure that they are putting this information out into the, the hands and the minds of the average New Jersey citizen because we want to make sure that everyone is really informed about um, uh, what could be the benefits of the legalization of marijuana. Um, what about things like, well, somebody just asked on here, things like continuing the education of um, the medical community, continuing, uh, I mean, are there things that we should, we, the state, should be setting up in anticipation of this? Now that there is going to be time at, you know, whether or not it passes is another question, but it's certainly going to be time, are these, is there groundwork that the state should be doing? Now, other, you know, besides the advocacy part, I mean, like the business building part or the education part or, you know, the licensing, setting up yourself for licensing or, or whatever. Is there anything we're missing here? I think prepare yourself for the inevitable. Like, I'm almost, I'm going to be 50 soon, so two years is like a blink of an eye to me. I'm not thinking, <laughs> some of you are like, we had to wait two years for me. I'm like, two years is next week. So... <laughs> And there's a lot of work to be done to prepare yourself. Like Lloyd said earlier, talking about the cannabis practice group, you have to deal with land use issues, you have to deal with tax issues, you have to deal with employment issues, and you have to be ready for that. What I would like to see in the, in the next two years, I would like to see the marketing ramped up a little bit so that people understand that this isn't a terrible thing. And we all see these, these cigarette commercials all of a sudden and make it seem like smoking a cigarette is the worst thing you could possibly do. And over time, people start thinking that smoking a cigarette and then you're going to die, right? So, so like the marketing of cannabis as a positive or at least not a terrible life choice, I would like to see that happen in the meantime. I would like to see um, more private funding mechanisms be created in the meantime as well. Because if you, you open your computer, and if the computer, Facebook thinks you have a couple dollars, they're like, invest in marijuana. Put your money in marijuana. And then people are looking at it, and they want to do it, but they don't know exactly how to do it. So I like to see you know, an increase in the investment community putting together funds to help people invest. And, and the last thing, not having to do with marijuana, I think we should start dealing with the social injustices in our criminal justice system across the board and implicit biases of police officers and you know the, the prosecutors and judges. I and think we, we can like do that. that whether or not. We uh, need to do uh, that you know, regardless. regardless. We need to do that regardless. Yeah, yeah. Um, let me just see if I, um, and is there anything, I don't think there's anything the state can do about this, but there, is there anything in, due to the federal Prohibition, and that doesn't seem like that will change anytime soon. Um, is there anything that can be done about the insurance issue here in New Jersey? Kelly, do you have any ideas? No. Okay. <laughs> so, I mean, there, there are a handful of, of creative ideas that are being floated around other state legislatures. I don't feel like I'm in a place to say this is the one that's gonna that, that this is the one that's gonna stick, but um, but I, I've made a commitment to New Jersey. Um, I, I call my turf the heartland. It's all the places that I love, and New Jersey is one of them. And so when we get something that has traction, New Jersey is gonna be the first in line to see what that looks like and and make it better. Okay. Well, I think we're gonna wrap this up because it's getting late. Thank you. I also want to thank Lee uh, Keo for moderating. I thought he did a great job.
couple of things. I, I want to thank our sponsors again, uh, Weed Maps, Archer Griner, and New Jersey Cannabis Industry Association. Um, I also uh, want to let you guys know that we will be posting a page next week on the event, which will include um, all the information that we projected, as well as uh, an article on the piece. Um, there will also be a podcast, uh, which we recorded, which, um, as well as, and I, I was a little off on this, um, the uh, live stream of it is on NJTV News' uh, YouTube channel, not their site, so you can find it there. Um, and I implore you all, before you leave, if you could fill out the survey and let us know how we did. Uh, that's really valuable for us uh, going forward. And I want to thank you again, and have a great weekend. We hope you enjoyed this program from NJ Spotlight. If you have comments or suggestions about these podcasts, please email info at njspotlight.com. Recording and post-production services for this podcast provided by State Broadcast News, a division of the Lubetkin Media Companies in Cherry Hill, New Jersey, on the web at statebroadcastnews.com. For everyone at NJ Spotlight, this is Steve Lubetkin. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you out there on the net. Take good care. NJ Spotlight, news, issues, and insight for New Jersey.